Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 171, and it's 12th of December, 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Or should I say three weeks? <laughs> yeah, it's been a little while, hasn't it? Um, it's been good. My three weeks in Star Wars have basically been spent reading the novelization of Revenge of the Sith, which is really excellent, and we're both excited to talk about it. But it's a very chunky book. It took a bit longer than the previous two, basically. So that's why we're slightly delayed. So apologies and thank you for your patience. But yeah, I assume you also enjoyed the experience of reading it again, Kirsty. Yeah, to be honest, I was a little bit worried about it because this book is really beloved by the fandom in general, right? Yeah. Um, and I've read it before, but a while ago, and I was a bit worried that it wouldn't kind of live up to the hype and like my memories of it being so wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I did enjoy it. And yeah, I'm just kind of relieved. <laughs> I know that sounds really weird, but I was like, what if I don't enjoy it? And I have to say that because that's going to be a bit controversial. So I was like, oh, thank God it was good. Yeah, do you think people might have been a bit like, ban the witch! Like, if they thought that you were trashing it. <laughs> like, I just, I sometimes I get a bit nervous about sharing negative critical opinions. <laughs> sure. I think people who are too averse to that might have um, signed off the podcast. Um, good for ago, them. But... <laughs> yeah, good for them. But yeah, but... no, I do think we try to focus on what we love, as Rose Tico does. Um, and yeah, luckily... We both really liked the Revenge of the Sith novelization, and we're excited to share our thoughts on it with you later. So I hope you're prepared for lots of quotes, because that's what I have in store for you. Um, but yeah, let's focus quickly on the news. And to be honest, there really hasn't been much. It's like a very quiet news period, which is quite amazing, considering that there's a new TV show coming out in less than a month. And it's been three weeks since we last recorded, but whatever, that's just the way of things. Um, so yep, the first thing we want to talk about is some casting news for The Acolyte, which I know is a show we're both very excited for. So yeah, could you read out that report, please, from the Illuminati? The Acolyte, Lucasfilm and an advanced negotiations with Amanda Stenberg to play a mysterious lead character. Um, this was initially reported as an exclusive by the Illuminati, and it was later confirmed by Variety and other trades. We at the Illuminati previously revealed that the lead character's name is Aura in the Acolyte, although it's possible that it's a code name. Now we've learned some even more intriguing new information about the Acolyte's lead role. According to our sources, Lucasfilm Limited is in talks with Amanda Stenberg to take on the lead role in the mysterious new Star Wars Disney Plus series, The Acolyte. Amanda Stenberg's breakout role came with her second feature role as Rue in the 2012 film adaptation of The Hunger Games. Stenberg has since starred in a number of other films, including romantic drama Everything Everything, the drama The Hate You Give, and World War II drama Where Hands Touch. Amanda Stenberg most recently played Alana Beck in Stephen Chbosky's film adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen, in which she collaborated with the original Broadway show's composers, Pasek and Paul, to create an original new song for her character. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. Um, I wanted us to read out that second paragraph just because I felt it was important to give context to who she is and like what her previous credits have been. Um, because, yeah, it kind of blows my mind that the kid from The Hunger Games, that cute, tiny little child, is now like old enough to be taken on like an adult role in like a Star Wars drama. I guess 
that's what is known as aging in time passing. (laughs) (laughs) It still blows my mind slightly. Um, But yeah, I've obviously seen them in the Hunger Games and I've seen them in a film called The Hate You Give. Um, And their performance in The Hate You Give was really, really good. I was very impressed by that. The film wasn't like a masterpiece, you know, but when there's a really strong performance in a film, you know, it stands out and you remember the person. So yeah, I'm very excited that she looks to be joining Star Wars, particularly in this project, because I think of all the Star shows that have been announced, this is still my most anticipated one, like now that Visions has gone, because Visions was also right up there for me. But yeah, Acolyte is like number one. Yeah, same. And this is really encouraging news. Like, hopefully this is where it goes. I'd be very happy over Mandela as the lead in, in the new Star Wars show. Um, well, I have to say, the only thing I've seen them in is The Hunger Games. So I've I've followed her career, but um, I The Hate You Give has been on my list for the longest time and I just haven't got around to it yet, but maybe this is the push I need. Yeah, well, it's a great excuse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you um, can test her out. Um, but yeah, yeah, does it also blow your mind a bit that, like, obviously we saw them when they were this little child in The Hunger Games and... Now they're like so much older. Again, I know I sound like I'm like an idiot, you know, like what time passes? <laughs> yeah, because I, I remember going to see that movie in the cinema, and yeah, she she was little cute little baby. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like nine years ago now, so exactly. Yeah, we should probably stop talking about that before we start feeling like we need to get like walking sticks and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, very very encouraging news. Um, yeah, I mean, as you said, we've both been excited about the Acolytes since we, we heard about it, since we knew that Leslie Headland was attached as the showrunner. Um, and t- to hear that, you know, more queer creatives and actors will be involved is really, really encouraging. So, yeah. And I must say, even just having a casting announcement, and obviously, it's, I know it's not from like the official Stars website or anything, but the fact it's been reported by Variety and like other big trades as well. That's so encouraging to me. So we've had so many projects that have just seemed to be announced and not go anywhere. Whereas yeah. when there's an actual casting announcement for the main role, that gives me confidence it's actually happening, you know, and it's really booting up to be filmed soon. So, yeah, yeah I'm really happy um, that it seems to be real and it will actually be a show <laughs> that I can watch at some point. So, yes, all very encouraging. <laughs> that hadn't really occurred to me but it should have given how many projects we hear about and then never hear from again and i guess we'll be talking about one of those later on in the news segment <laughs> yeah that's like that's actually goes. a great segue <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the next piece of news and uh, it's kind of like a continuation of a saga i suppose we have already talked about this but yeah i'll just read this it's very brief um, it's basically the news from Deadline.com that Carrie Scogland will replace Patty Jenkins as the director of Cleopatra, and apparently that's so Jenkins can focus on Wonder Woman 3 in Rogue Squadron. Um, I could read the text verbatim from the Deadline article, but it would just reiterate what I've just said, so I won't do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, the reason to bring this up is that I can't even remember exactly what how we framed it when we brought it up last time, but we definitely said something about Rogue Squadron. Well, it was being pushed back, right? They said that initially that had been the film project that was going to be like coming up, like that was going to be the next film that they make and release. Yes. Um, but then we heard that it was being pushed back, and there would be a different film that was coming out first. Yeah. Um, 
So I guess this, it doesn't like contradict that. It probably still means that Rogue Squadron will be a little later if they're trying to push out Wonder Woman 3 first, but it still at least sounds like Patty will be involved. Yes, exactly. And again, I guess continuing the thread from the Acolyte discussion we just had, this is kind of reassuring to me because, I don't know, I was just feeling a little bit sceptical about Rogue Squadron actually happening after the like recent like reports essentially about it being pushed back, you know, moving off that 2023 date. That's kind of like, oh, is this their way of like quietly burying it? Um, but this suggests to me that they are still serious about it and there are still plans for it to go ahead. Mm. And that is good to me. Again, I'm not going to pretend it's like my most hyped project from Lucasfilm because they have their work cut out to make me care about pilots. This isn't news to anyone who's been listening to this podcast it, for a it while. It could always surprise us though. No, exactly. Know? And that's why, you know, like I like I'm still keen on it you know and especially because it's the first woman director to do a Star Wars film you know that Mm. is important and that does matter to me personally so yeah I really really do want to see this project take off (laughs) (laughs) just think of all the flying puns you can bring in (laughs) exactly the possibilities are endless um so yeah um I'm pleased because this seems at the very least encouraging um and yeah, honestly, does the world really need a new Cleopatra film? I don't think so. so. With Gal Gadot? <laughs> Definitely not with Gal Gadot. Sorry. I mean, it just, <laughs> uh, the idea of following Elizabeth Taylor with... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's like getting someone from the dollar store, isn't it? I, I know that's mean. I know that's mean. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it's like, come on, it's Elizabeth Taylor. That's like, yeah, just top tier celebrity, you know, and like classic, iconic charismatic and yeah no i'm gonna stop i'm gonna stop so then the final thing that you want to discuss in the news section is that we have a little bit of what might be considered an update on the rangers of the new republic show which is basically it seems like it's no longer happening um yeah so could you read out what the relevant part in empire magazine had to say about this kirsty mm-hmm for now, fellow Mando spin-off Rangers of the New Republic, due to centre on Mandalorian's Cara Dune, played by Gina Carano, who Lucasfilm later stated is not currently employed by them, following controversial social media posts, seems to be on hold, and likely to be absorbed into other series. We'd never written any scripts or anything on that, confirms Kennedy. Some of that will figure into future episodes, I'm sure, of the next iteration of Mandalorian. Thank Christ for that. I just wonder why they feel the need to announce things before they even did any work on them because then if you cancel them it just looks bad. Yeah. No, exactly. It's a shame. Like I would be genuinely pissed if they do actually cancel that Lando show. And I guess even like cancel might be a strong word because it's just announced with a title card and there's been nothing since. So yeah, I, I really hope that still happens. That's something I do actually care about to some degree and I'm interested in watching. Um, but yeah, I was never really interested in the show, so as far as I'm concerned, good riddance. Especially because Kara was meant to be the main character, which, yeah, Kirsty and I were just talking about it before we started recording, but it's like, why? Of all the characters you could have lead a TV show, why her? It's, why with that actor? Yeah, it's the performance. It's, you know, she, politics aside, not a good performance not a strong actor. If if anyone looks at that performance and thinks this person should lead a show, I am judging them. I'm sorry. <laughs> like that was not the right call even before she started being disgustingly transphobic and 
yeah i just don't i don't understand that choice at all yeah no it kind of feels like they stumbled into a good situation by being able to cancel it um yeah because obviously gina's such a trash person and they got rid of her and thus inadvertently got rid of the show too (laughs) but yeah it's just like bullet dodged i guess but yeah it's just incredible that it got to that point but yeah good riddance Mm. um (laughs) okay yeah sorry that's a real bummer to end the news section on (laughs) but on a good note we're about to move on something we both really really enjoyed and we're really excited to talk about so that's good isn't it everyone yay yeah, and you know, enjoy is kind of a a weird word as well because when it comes to the Revenge of the Sith, obviously we've talked about it before. We did our prequel retrospective not too long ago. This yeah. story is like painful. Yes, you know it is full on angst tragedy. Very much. So, so you enjoy it because, especially in the novelization, I think we both agree it goes like above and beyond what the film is able to do in that medium and. Um, with the kind of characters that you have in these situations where they are under pressure to like appear very stoic and yet there's all of this conflict and emotional turmoil going on under the surface with a book you're really able to do that kind of thing justice and explore it um in a way that this like really strengthens and enriches your experience of the film in my opinion yes but yeah enjoy kind of implies a light leisurely <laughs> read and it was not that <laughs> yeah no no it's, it's true it's quite intense um and this will sound like a tangent but i promise i make it work and i promise i bring it back to revenge of the sith but i watched um west side story the new one by spielberg um at the cinema um on friday and it's very good so i recommend that you go and see it if you can um but just watching that reminded me of how much i love a good tragedy you know, that I, like it's based on Romeo and Juliet, guys. It's a very old musical. It's been around for a long time. So it's not a spoiler that it's a tragedy. Okay, so don't shout at me. I don't know anything about it, to be honest. So. Okay, yeah. Well, in that case, I won't go into the specifics of how it's a tragedy. But just watching that film, it reminded me of why I love tragedy, you know, and why it can be so effective and powerful and, dare I say it, entertaining, you know. And again, I feel a bit weird to use words like entertaining about a story that's so tragic and sad. But it just is, you know, there's like real value in those sorts of stories when they're well executed and done well. And that's what this novel does. It's a very well executed tragedy and it has a real point to it and a real purpose because it's very much about dissecting how this particular tragedy came about. And in order to get to the root of that, it has a very, very laser focused approach, which is character, 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 character everything goes back to the characters in this book and it's just such bliss to read because i've read so many star wars novels where it's all the plot basically and obviously there are characters in those stories and the characters do important things but it's not so much about them it's more about what they're doing you know it's not so much about what's going on inside them whereas this book is like 70 percent about what's going on inside people's minds and that's what I love about it so much. It's yeah, just quite fascinating. It does so much that it would just be impossible for a film to do. Yeah, I think we were saying earlier that the other novelizations are perfectly enjoyable, nice companions to the film. They pretty much do what a novelization is supposed to do. But this one, it almost feels like you could read this in lieu of actually watching the film. Yeah, And it might even be a deeper experience depending. And I don't mean that to slight the film. I do really like Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. Um, 
but as you say because it goes so deep into like what the characters are actually thinking and feeling in a way that the film just doesn't quite manage to reach um yeah it's kind of its own thing yeah exactly and yeah i honestly think you could read it as a standalone um obviously it would make more sense if you read it with the context of the surrounding <laughs> star wars media i think i think you might struggle if you went in and you were like who are any of these characters or what's been happening to get <laughs> to this true. point you might still want to watch the prequels yeah I, yeah I think at the very least it would be helpful to um watch slash read um phantom menace and attack of the clones or at the very least attack of the clones you really do need to read that one <laughs> um but yeah, I just think as a self-contained work, it's very, very well done and very well executed. But yeah, we're slightly getting ahead of ourselves um, because I love structure and my notes are very carefully structured always. So I'll just bring us back around to the notes briefly. So yeah, the novelization project, I've been doing it for a while. We did the original trilogy novelizations yonks ago. I can't even remember when exactly, probably last year. It was last year. Yeah, yeah. it was a while ago. Um, And in the last few weeks, we've picked it up again and we've returned to the prequel novelizations. So the episodes preceding this one are on the Attack of the Clones novelization and the Phantom Menace novelization. So I recommend that you go back and listen to those discussions first. But if you don't want to, or if you just want to hear about Revenge of the Sith, then that's what this episode is for. So I hope you enjoy. Um... But yeah, I did some digging into the background of this novelization, um, and again, it was kind of hard to find um, interviews with the author Matthew Stover. Um, I did start off with his biography, which is at the end of my omnibus edition of all three prequel novelizations, and I found his biography very funny. Um, so I'll just read that out. So it says, Matthew Stover is the New York Times best-selling author of five previous novels, including Star Wars Shatterpoint, Star Wars, The New Jedi Order, Traitor, Heroes Die, and The Blade of Tishal. He is an expert in several varieties of martial arts. Stover lives outside Chicago. And I just found that mention of him being an expert in martial arts very funny because all the other bios, they're very standard and they're all like, he lives with his wife, Judine, in the Pacific Northwest and Hawaii. You know, that's all like standard, you know, it's like who they live with, whether they're married, like where they are geographically in the world. Whereas Matt, he's like, I like martial arts. It's nice to have a little taste of what else they're into. <laughs> no, no, I, I like it. I think it's great. If they're happy to share it. <laughs> yeah, no, it gives some character to him. Not, that's not to say being married doesn't give you character. Of course it does. But, you know, it's like breaking the mold. I appreciate that. So, yeah, <laughs> give me a good feel for him. Um, Unfortunately, I had less good feel because when searching for interviews with Matthew Stover, the main one that came up was a um, video interview he did with the channel Star Wars Theory. I was going to say that was a recent one, right? Because it was about... <laughs> partly about the sequel trilogy that's the context i heard about it in anyway yeah i'm not going to dwell on it but i don't like that channel and i didn't want to watch that particular interview <laughs> so i kept on looking <laughs> and i found a very old um article that i could only access via the Wayback machine um I, I can't even tell exactly when it's from it might be from 2015 it might be before then who knows um, but it's from 2015 at the latest, and it's basically an interview with Matthew Stover all about the Revenge of the Sith novelization, without any attachment to Star Wars Fury. So I was very happy to find this. <laughs> Surprises me, actually. Sorry to interrupt again. No worries, but go. there aren't more recent ones because this book is so beloved by the fandom in general. Yeah. Surprises me that like no one's reached out to him for an interview yeah. more recently. You know? 
No, that's true. Um, and it kind of suggests to me he might be kind of reticent to give interviews. You know, I'm oh, sure maybe. people have approached yeah. him because, okay. yeah, like you say, it's one of the most iconic Star Wars books. And he's obviously written several Star Wars books that I haven't read, but I believe his other ones are quite well regarded as well. So, yeah, he's a bit of an icon and might be a bit reclusive. Who knows? Just like tucked away somewhere doing his martial arts. Good for him. Um, but yes. We have this interview from S.F. Crow's Nest, which who knows what that means, but maybe it's San Francisco Crow's Nest, maybe it's science fiction Crow's Nest. I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter. So, yeah, could you read out the first part of the interview that I've highlighted, please, Kirsty? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they ask him, why were you chosen to pen the novelization? The word I got through Del Rey is that Lucas Books thought I was the best writer to handle the darkness of the story. I mean, that's a lot of what I'm known for, after all the psychological breakdown of characters under extreme moral pressure. After reading the script, I surmised that another reason they might have wanted me for this story is my reputation for having a certain touch with personal combat, because there is a buttload of fighting in this story. Am I allowed to say buttload? <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yeah, you do get a lot of personality come through in this interview, which I really appreciate. Um, and yeah, and I felt like this is vindicated by what I see in the book. You know, there is a lot of action, especially in that early section, you know, where it's dramatizing that like space battle and going to rescue Palpatine, basically. That that's the sort of thing I'd imagine being very, very hard to dramatize, you know, because it's so visual, you know, it's inherently visual. It's spaceships flying through space and shooting other spaceships. <laughs> but he makes it work, you know, again by bringing it back to the characters. So like I felt he had a really good approach to all the like action and combat stuff. Yeah. No, I agree. And could you read out the next part of the interview, please? Mm -hmm. They ask him, did you work from a final script or was the script evolving as you wrote? How much freedom did you have to improvise or fill in gaps in action and character motivation? I worked from the script as it stood at the close of principal photography, though there were some plot changes and rewrites that I had to adjust to as Mr. Lucas got into the process of editing and reshoots. I stuck to the script as closely as I thought was appropriate for a novel. There are necessities in novels where someone can go back and read a transition again and take the time to think, hey, wait, what just happened here? That in a film, you can scream on past and leave people to figure out later. Mr. Lucas gave me a great deal of leeway in dealing with the dialogue and the details of this and that, as long as I didn't alter the sense of the action. The one place where I really had no freedom at all was in the character's motivations. Mr. Lucas had an exceptionally clear idea of exactly why everyone was doing what, and he wasn't about to allow me to mess around with that even a little bit. After all, the why is what this story is really about. And the funny thing was, there didn't turn out to be any gaps in motivation. It was all there. A real depth of human insight went into the creation of this story, as simple as its shiny surfaces might appear to some people. When I couldn't understand why someone was acting in a particular way at a particular time, it turned out that I just hadn't been looking deeply enough. In the end, it all turned out so clear, and for me anyway, so true, that the character arcs have the same tragic inevitability as the mechanics of the plot. In a very real sense, they are the mechanics of the plot. What a good answer. Yeah, it's great, right? And yeah. I feel, again, all of that comes through when you're reading this. You know, it's so... There's just so much clarity to everything. You know, it just feels like having a glass of cool water on a hot day. <laughs> you know, when you're used to things being a bit muddy and not very clearly articulated... And yeah. this book's the opposite of that. You know, you really sense that he understood exactly what story he was telling and how to tell it. And yeah, it's just so well done. Yeah, for me, there's a little point of frustration here. And again, I'll reiterate, I really like Revenge of the Sith as a movie. So I'm not like 
criticizing it as such. And I, I believe him when he says that George was like super clear on his character's motivations. I just think there's so much crammed into the story and there's so much going on with the complex politics and like the, the various betrayals and factions between the characters that it's really hard for it all to come through, at least as clear as it does in this book with the film. But that's why it's great that the book exists. Because if you aren't quite clear on something or you just kind of want to explore why a character exactly is doing something and how they feel about it, this book is perfect for that. Exactly. Yeah, so I feel like one of the best things this book does is it takes stuff that can seem like... Uh, extraneous is too strong a word, but it feels like separate somehow from the character journeys. You know, like the stuff about like Anakin being used as... Like the Jedi wants to use Anakin as a spy, you know, on Palpatine. And that can feel like quite a plot thing, you know, but in the book, it becomes such a crucial aspect of that character's journey, you know, and seeding that distrust of the Jedi. And again, I do think that that's exactly how Lucas meant it to come across in the film, but it just doesn't come across with that clarity in the film in the same way it does in the book. And I think that is just because, you know, like George, obviously everyone knows that his strength isn't with actors, you know, and there's so much that's going on in this book that's internal you know and it's really clearly setting out the character's thoughts and emotions every single turn in the story and it just doesn't come through in the same way in the film and yeah it's definitely one of the frustrations with the film as Kirsty said that is like answered exceptionally well in the book so yeah it's kind of like a, an essential counterpart to it i think if you're a true fan then you're gonna read the book <laughs> <laughs> well i guess for that reason if anyone's like you know one of those kind of people and you know i guess i partly put myself in this camp that you like really admire and understand and respect the overall like larger story of what the, the prequels are trying to do you just don't completely love all the ways in which it's executed yeah. Like, I could not recommend this book enough to those people, you know, mm. um, because it, it really brings it home, like, why the story happened the way it did, how it's all been building. I mean, you even, like, in, in the most unexpected ways, like, you get in-depth looks into Count Dooku's motivations and ideas oh, yeah. and understanding of the situation. I love that stuff so much. I'm not yeah. sure we'll have time for it, but I do actually have quotes from that part, and, oh, it's just brilliant. I love it. Yeah, it's it's really well done and in a way that contextualizes, you know, stuff that might be confusing a little in Attack of the Clones as well. Yes. So Yeah. No, it's really, really great. Um, yep, then there's just one final part to that interview that I wanted to read out here. Um, yep, could you um go ahead and read that please, Kirsty? If Anakin's purpose is the chosen one, according to the Jedi prophecy, is to restore balance to the Force, then isn't he just fulfilling that prophecy by going over to the dark side and serving Palpatine? Isn't he simply doing what he was always meant to do, and doesn't this absolve him of responsibility for his actions? Huh. Tell it to the theologians. By that argument, Judas Iscariot shouldn't be in hell. Perhaps more appropriately in this case, you can also try to tell that to the Greek tragedians, since the prequel trilogy has more in common with Greek tragedy. Oedipus is still guilty of his, each of his crimes, despite the fact that he didn't know they were crimes, despite the fact that he was destined to commit them. We are responsible for what we do, everything we do, period. End of story, no excuses, ever. In Anakin's case, it's even more clear. The prophecy says nothing about how he will bring balance to the Force. Without giving away anything, spoilers give me a rash, let me just say that there is more than one place in the story where Anakin has the chance to fulfil his destiny without falling. He chooses not to. 
but he doesn't exactly escape punishment for his crimes either. Mm, spicy, spicy. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I do think that, again, I feel like I'm giving the same response to every quote, but this comes through in the novel, shockingly, because this is an interview of the author of the novel, um, in the sense that you do get the t- sense that repeatedly throughout the book, there's these tipping points, you know, where it could really go either way, you know, and it's kind of like hanging and it's like suspended, like on a very fine line, like between two different pathways. And obviously poor old Anakin consistently chooses the bad pathways. <laughs> but again, that's kind of like part of the interest in reading the book because you sense how easy it is to make that decision, you know, and while he does make bad decisions, they're framed to be so compelling and so seductive that you really do understand why he keeps on like making the worst possible choice every time. Yeah, it is really hard, isn't it? Because like you, you understand why he's making the choices he does, but like you can also see the levels of denial and rationalization that he's like wrapping around himself to kind of convince himself that he's making the good choices. And that he's doing it for Padme as opposed to for himself. Like, right up until the end, when, you know, he's gone so dark that he no longer cares about her and just sees her as the traitor. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny how he kind of, like, betrays himself and his own, like, true like attitude towards things, like, through what he says sometimes. But we'll get to that later on. Yeah. Oh, and I, I should clarify that, you know, he has that point where he thinks of Padme as the traitor and like lashes out at her but by the end of the book he's still like <sighs> once he realizes that she's dead and he's kind of been told that it's his fault he he does like he's I guess he's like coming to terms with that like he's he's not like he doesn't care about her anymore but at that point he can't he doesn't have anywhere else to turn he kind of has to face up to the choices he's made and what he's done Exactly. He's like that cold, brutal reality that he doesn't want to face, but he's got no choice but to face it. Um, but yeah, I might just have a quote about that because <laughs> there's one thing I'm good at in preparing for the novelization discussions is finding quotes. Um, so yeah, I hope people are excited. Um, and yeah, just to give some context into the world that this book was released into, um, I found an article um, from the Canadian website um, CBC, I don't know what that is it's presumably the Canadian BBC I'm not sure, but anyway enough of my rambling, is an article discussing the novel when it was released and why it came out earlier than the movie, so I will read this This is the earliest we've gone on sale with a Star Wars movie tie-in Kathy Payne told CBC Arts Online Payne, who is Deputy Director of Publishing and Promotion for Random House, the book's Canadian publisher, says her company is targeting hardcore fans No shit <laughs> she also says she has never received an angry phone call from one of those fans complaining that the novelization had spoiled the movie. I love how quaint that is, a phone call. You can tell it's um pretty old. Um yeah. An early publication date also helps sales, she added. When Star's diehards went to see the first prequel, The Phantom Menace, and were upset over the silly character Jar Jar Binks, sales of that novelization slowed. Or Matthew Stover, author of Revenge of the Sith, said in an interview with the Associated Press that even though the novel gives away the story, he doesn't think fans will be content with just the book. Look at how much we know already. We know that Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader. We know that the Republic falls and becomes the Empire. We know that Anakin is horribly burned and can only survive by being encased in the armour that enables him to live as Darth Vader, he said. (laughs) I just love how he has no bullshit. Um, 
Payne believes the book, which is currently number 10 on the Amazon bestseller list, will be a huge sales success in Canada. That's fascinating to me. I didn't realise Amazon was around that early, um, but obviously it was, and I just have a poor oh, yeah. memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was interesting context. We've discussed before about novelizations coming out before the film, um, but I found it particularly interesting that the decision that the backlash over the Phantom Menace um, and Jar Jar might have... Yeah, it's quite sad, isn't it? It is quite sad, yeah. But they're right. At the end of the day, you can't spoil too much about Revenge of the Sith because, as he said in that earlier answer, this story is way more about the why and how rather than the what. Like, you do kind of know. Like, obviously, Padme doesn't join Anakin on the dark side. We know that... Well, I guess we don't know that she dies at the end of Revenge of the Sith because Leia has said that she remembers her mum. Um, but we know that they're not together. Um, so, yeah, the the bare bones, they're already there. It's just kind of like seeing how it happens. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, just a window into a different time in how books were released. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we have already basically shared our general impressions of how we found the novel to be, which is very good. That was like our main like <laughs> consensus, I think. Um, but yeah, were there particular aspects of it that you'd want to praise that we haven't perhaps touched on yet, Kirsty? I guess that that um, that way he like presents each character when they're introduced within the story. What what is it he does? He goes, this is Anakin Skywalker. This is General Grievous, or whoever it is. Yes. And then like properly goes into kind of the. I don't know the history of that character and where they're at now and what they want and it's just kind of an interesting way to introduce them in in this medium yeah he just gives you like a little potted overview doesn't he of like this is the place the character is in this is the type of person they are this is their relationships with the other characters and this is what they want and again I know we touched on it earlier you know ideally you would read the other Star Wars books or see the films before reading this book but I think partially those introductions to each character, they are like a helpful little recap almost, you know, to who is this person. Um, so yeah, you could follow it, I think, in its own right because of those little recaps, which, yeah, they're very good and well done. And I do feel like they also like illuminate some of the characters in new ways that you might not have had for them before. But I have those quotes, so let's not talk about that too much now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree. I really loved those touches. I don't know if this is going too specific, but I really liked his use of metaphor as well, of like the dragon inside yes. Anakin's heart. And um, there's there's a bit where they go into like the notion of it all as a play, and there's like the metaphor of Palpatine as the author, and you know the the characters are giving us performances, and they're on a stage, and it kind of works really well because it heightens that aspect of it, like adds the Shakespearean tragedy, or that it's like kind of an opera. You know, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I feel like you could like read this novel like several times, and each time like have a different read of it. You know, like if you were to focus on the theatricality of everything for one reading, I feel like certain threads of the book would stand out to you really strongly. Um, yeah, so that's definitely there. Mm. Um, and yeah, in line with that, I really liked what I did with perspective because often it used perspective and like how the story's been narrated in quite unexpected ways 
So, like, obviously, in the film, you have the confrontation where the Jedi go to confront Palpatine because Anakin's told them that he's a Sith Lord. And it's played straight. You know, you just see them turn up, you see them fight Palpatine, blah, blah, blah. Whereas in the book, you actually get that encounter as a hollow recording that Palpatine is clearly intending to use for his own propaganda purposes later on. And it's just, like, such, like, a clever, unexpected touch, you know, and it's just like so creative and different. You know, there's nothing equivalent to that in any of the other novels. Um, at least none of the novelizations that I've read. And yeah, I just f- felt like, wow, Matt Stover, your mind, your mind, what's going on? <laughs> this is great. It's really good. And yet, yeah. and just like choices that shouldn't work. Like he describes one of the late scenes with Padme and Anakin. You know, it was a very emotional scene. It's after Anakin's fallen to the dark side. And it's described from C-3PO's perspective, you know, and that's like a weird choice on the surface, but I felt it really worked. Like, what did you think about that sort of thing, Kirsty? I really liked it because I mean, I love 3PO anyway, but just kind of like seeing it through his eyes, it kind of emphasized the confusion and how the characters were behaving in such extreme ways that he couldn't really understand what was happening because it wasn't the way things usually go. Um and that yeah, Anakin was lost at that point, so he was like appearing to behave one way, but there was just something wrong, you know? It was like yeah, very unsettling. Exactly. So yeah, it's really good. Also, also appreciated how the book kind of built up the idea of Obi Wan and Padme having a thing behind Anakin's back way more than the movie done it just too. Yeah. I wasn't sure whether that was like a choice that Stover made on his own on his own or if like that was something that George really had planned to be more of a thing in the movie and then kind of dialed it back I do think it was there more in like some of the earlier iterations of the script um, mm. and yeah I think stuff like Padme pro- plotting with the rebellion obviously we know that was filmed and I think a big part of the you know it's kind of like there's a it's not even made explicit in the book but you kind of get the feeling that Anakin's suspicious there might be an affair going on um and obviously that arises from her involvement with the rebellion thing because he thinks that's kind of what she's hiding from him you know that there's some sort of like intimate involvement with obi-wan when it's not that at all it's more about like oh god what's going on with anakin you know i'm being torn and like getting involved with these efforts to like undermine palpatine blah 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 that's where the subterfuge is coming in but it's all like horribly and tragically misinterpreted and yeah but I agree with you I really liked how that thread was drawn out um, because it just makes it more personal especially because a huge part of this book is about how the characters all love each other it's not just about how Anakin loves Padme it's also about how Anakin loves Obi-Wan and vice versa and like complicated web of connections between those three characters and yeah that's really really drawn to the surface in the book and it's done really well yeah. Another thing that feels a little different to the film is how the Jedi seem to be much more savvy in terms of like not trusting Palpatine right from the start. Yes, that's like, true. Like they know. They don't say that they think it's him, but they know it's someone in his inner circle at least. Yeah. So they they just seem a bit more with it and like tailor focused. And like even, you know, bef- before they ask Anakin to spy on him, like there are clear reasons for that because they were already suspicious. So I, I just appreciated that because it seemed a little less ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. 
in the film, they come across as like a bit idiotic, really, don't they? <laughs> Relative to the um, business with Palpatine. It's like, come on, it's staring you in the face. He's the Sith Lord. Um, yeah, I guess Anakin yeah. is still like, he does not believe it until Palpatine straight up says it to him. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he's, not, he's not the sharpest pencil in the um, pen pot, is he? Yeah. He just really loves him. He does, yeah. You I'm know? being mean. Um, I guess we it's not really quite explored enough or at least, like, acknowledged aside from this novelization that, like, Palpatine betrays Anakin in this real way. That he, like, presents himself to him as, like, a trustworthy father figure. That's what he's doing. Like, yeah, ostensibly, he's a Sith who, like, brings him onto his side. But that is a betrayal because he knows what it will cost Anakin. Yeah, exactly. And he's, you know, he's presenting it as, like, oh, I'll help you save the woman you love when he has no intention of doing that. And I, I've always found it funny that, like, he presents, like, that's something that the Sith, you know, strive for, for eternal life. And yet, as soon as Anakin's on his side, it's like, well, I don't actually know the secret, but we could figure it out together. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really horrible. Um, and I don't know if you found this as well, but like, I, obviously, Palpatine is so important in this book. You know, he's like one of the main characters in many ways. But I was looking through for quotes, you know, to try and like have a Palpatine section of the discussion. And I was really struggling and I realised it's because, yes, Palpatine is incredibly important in this book and he appears throughout most of it, to be honest. You know, he's there a lot. But he's like the only character where you don't actually get inside his head. You know, Mm. you only experience him through his interactions with others and how he's manipulating them. And I felt that was such a clever choice because I I kind of feel like there is just meant to be this huge void at the centre of Palpatine. Yeah, I wouldn't want to get inside his head. Because <laughs> he is meant to be the point of all evil. Yeah. Because there's a bit even when, <laughs> this is really on the nose, that Anakin has Palpatine on one side. And I think they actually say like he's whispering over his shoulder and Obi-Wan's on the other side. Because <laughs> it's right at the beginning where he's like rescuing them both, right? Yes. So <laughs> he's got Obi-Wan slumped over one shoulder and Palpatine's whispering into his other ear. And it's clearly meant to be like the devil and angel. Yeah. So if if the devil is all... Palpatine is meant to represent yeah you don't need to get inside his head because he's just meant to be the tempter for for Anakin he fulfills that role beautifully it's very good (laughs) um okay cool so I feel like there's more we could say in general but I also feel like we have so much to say specifically about the character stuff and I'm really keen to get to that is there anything else general you'd like to say Kirsty before we move on I'm finding it a bit hard to talk about this book because all I want to say is that people should go read it if they haven't (laughs) yes because like the book itself speaks for itself so much better than I could, you of know. Course. Like I just, I just think it's, it's really worthwhile. Yeah, and I do think that it's particularly hard to talk about books, because the beauty in a book is so much about the minu- the minutiae of it, and also the structure. It's how both of those things interact, you know, the very small fine details, but then the overall synthesis of all the ingredients. Um, see, I personally find books much harder to discuss than films because there's just so, like, you know, even like a word choice can make a big difference, you know, or like a piece of punctuation. And it's probably the English student in me, you know, I'll never get over that, like, intricate focus on language. Um, but yeah, I feel like I can never do it justice, basically. So I second what Kirsty is saying and you should read it um, because, yeah, it's very hard to do it justice in this sort of discussion. But we're going to try. So, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so obviously the characters, 
the main character in this book is Anakin. I think that's kind of un- unambiguous. Would you agree, Kirsty? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, no, it's Yoda. <laughs> but you do follow Obi-Wan almost as closely. I mean, yeah. He's, he's, he's up there. Exactly. And I definitely feel like this novel did the best of Obi-Wan of any of the novelizations. He's like the most fully realised character, I think, in this one. But we'll get to yeah. him next. Um, yeah, so with Anakin, obviously there's this like persistent like idea of him having this dragon inside of him. And I've tried to focus on picking out quotes that evolve that dragon metaphor, basically. Because I think it's so fascinating and well done. Particularly how it's resolved at the very end of the book, which I won't spoil just yet because we're going to get there. Um, but yeah, it's just like such a clever idea. So obviously, there's nothing about Anakin having a dragon inside of him <laughs> in the film, and it's the kind of thing that only works in a book. You know, you can only use that sort of like metaphorical language in the context of the written word. Um, it would be really weird in a film. Yeah, they they could. It would just be a very different style of, yes. of film. You know. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't do it in the film, but I think it works really beautifully here. So, yeah, I'm happy it's the choice that was made. Um, yeah, so you were obviously talking earlier, Kirsty, about there being this whole, like, this is Anakin Skywalker um, introduction to, like, each character, basically. So not just Anakin, but a lot of the characters get that, like, potted history, I suppose. Um, and, yeah, this excerpt does go into the dragon thing. It's a really long excerpt, though, so I think I'm going to just take a unilateral decision to shorten it um, and I'll just focus on that bit so this is Anakin Skywalker the most powerful Jedi of his generation perhaps of any generation the fastest the strongest an unbeatable pilot an unstoppable warrior on the ground in the air or sea or space there's no one even close he has not just power not just skill but dash that rare and valuable combination of boldness and grace. He's the best there is at what he does, the best there has ever been, and he knows it. Holonet features call him the hero without fear, and why not? What should he be afraid of? Except, fear lives inside him anyway, chewing away the firewalls around his heart. Anakin sometimes thinks of the dread that eats at his heart as a dragon. Children on Tatooine tell each other of the dragons that live inside the suns, Smaller cousins of the sun dragons are supposed to live inside the fusion furnaces that power everything from starships to pod racers. But Anakin's fear is another kind of dragon. A cold kind. A dead kind. Not nearly dead enough. Not long after he became Obi-Wan's Padawan, all those years ago, a minor mission had brought them to a dead system. One so immeasurably old that its star had long ago turned to a frigid dwarf of hyper-compacted trace metals, hovering a quantum fraction of a degree above absolute zero. Anakin couldn't even remember what the mission might have been, but he'd never forgotten that dead star. It scared him. Stars can die? It's the way of the universe, which is another manner of saying that it is the will of the Force, Obi-Wan had told him. Everything dies. In time, even stars burn out. This is why Jedi form no attachments, all things pass. To hold on to something, or someone, beyond its time is to set your selfish desires against the Force. That is the path of misery, Anakin. The Jedi do not walk it. That is the kind of fear that lives inside Anakin Skywalker, the dragon of that dead star. It is an ancient, cold, dead voice within his heart that whispers, all things must die. 
and then it goes on and it obviously elaborates on how his mother's died and there's like fear about losing everyone that he loves blah 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 um but yeah and, it, and it's really good and i would love to keep reading but i think i'll asphyxiate so i'm gonna stop but yeah how do you feel about that as a sort of introduction to this novel's picture of anakin kirsty it's a really strong setup because for anyone who's like skeptical about obi-wan and like how he manages to you know hold up those jedi ways and like break those attachments when necessary it doesn't show it as like an easy thing to do it just shows it as the right thing to do and it kind of shows his process that like he does feel the grief and the anger and the hurt and then he makes the choice to let it go and anakin for whatever reason and obviously there are there are a number of reasons um that have been kind of built up throughout the trilogy and you know in- including how he was raised by his mum and then how he was taken away from her too soon and all that um anakin can't do it or chooses not to um and i just think the way that those two characters are contrasted in this book it- it's done really well because it doesn't present it as like easy for obi-wan he's still human but he follows the jedi way and it allows him to eventually walk away from Anakin, as painful as that is. Yeah. And I think it's the kind of choice, you know, in terms of the emphasis with Anakin and what Stover chooses to focus on with him. It's the kind of choice that makes me feel like it is just a good novel in its own right. Because I feel like it's one of the most fundamental and relatable human dilemmas you can have. You know, that confrontation of death, that fear of your own mortality, of the mortality of the people you love and care about. You know, that's so fundamental to being human, you know. And a lot of the time in fantasy and sci-fi, it just doesn't engage with those ideas. You know, or at least if it does try to engage with them, it doesn't do it in a particularly interesting or resonant way. Whereas I feel like this story is moving precisely because it does confront like how awful and shit it is you know like losing people you love and care about and yeah it's just really really captured very well and I love that you have that sort of story in this kind of like operatic fantasy context I think it's really cool Mm -hmm. it's kind of making me want to read the story again (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's great (laughs) because it is like the ultimate epic you know it's got everything it's got the romance it's got the friendship breakups yeah got the political backdrop it's yeah it's a full meal (laughs) free course meal (laughs) although i wouldn't describe revenge of the sith as a dessert so forget that metaphor (laughs) okay Uh, yeah then the next quote i have um, about anakin is him going to yoda for help basically because he's had the dream of padme dying in childbirth and obviously he's panicking and he wants support you know with that fear that he has like tying very nicely into what we've just discussed Uh, Yeah, so could you read out what I've highlighted, please, Kirsty? Rejoice for those who transform into the Force. Mourn them not, miss them not. Then why do we fight at all, Master? Why save anybody? Speaking of anybody, we are not, Yoda had said sternly. Speaking of you and your vision and your fear, we are. The shadow of greed attachment is what you fear to lose. Train yourself to release. Let go of fear and loss can't harm you. Which was when Anakin had realised Yoda wasn't going to be any help at all. The greatest sage of the Jedi Order had nothing better to offer him than more pious babble about letting things pass out of his life, like he hadn't heard that a million times already. Easy for him, who had Yoda ever cared about, really cared about? Of one thing Anakin was certain, the ancient master had never been in love, 
or he would have known better than to expect Anakin to just fold his hands and close his eyes and settle in to meditate, while what was left of Padme's life evaporated like the ghost mist of dew in a Tatooine winter dawn. I feel like this almost sets you up for the possibility that Yoda has been in love. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's not what I was expecting you to say. (laughs) Well, Anakin's like, well, obviously this means that he's never cared about anyone. It's like, maybe he has. Maybe Stover was sowing some seeds. Maybe he wanted to like come back to Lucasfilm for pitch, saying like, "Look, we I know I've set this up with Anakin, but I want to show that even Yoda has this great love in his history." <laughs> maybe Fiadal, maybe for someone else. Who knows? I mean, to be honest, you know the way Anakin says that or thinks it to himself, like, "Well, obviously this means that this person has never known love." It's like, "Well, no, we so many people experience love in their lives, but we all also experience loss." And you do have to process that and eventually learn to live with it. So, yeah, even from these early stages, you can kind of sense that self-centeredness with Anakin and this like unwillingness to believe that other people would have similar problems. Because this is something that everyone goes through, as you said. You know, we all have to to grieve and and let people go in that sense. Yeah, exactly. I do feel like it shows like some of the worst aspects of Anakin's character if I dare say. It's clear as well like you know even from early on like if you're familiar with Padme as a character and what she stands for that the thought of Anakin saving her by doing what he does is just unthinkable you know like it's it's so abhorrent because yes you might want to save her physically but at what cost that's against everything that she stands for yeah so that's that's an insult to her in a way you know exactly yeah it's a very selfish attitude towards the people you love basically it's all about Anakin ultimately even though he believes he's thinking about other people and yeah like I feel like it does emphasize Anakin's like selfishness I think in his approach to this but I feel like it doesn't do it without sympathy you know towards how he's feeling because I do feel like Yoda's very like dismissive and abrupt and obviously Anakin's not being completely transparent with why he's going to Yoda for advice I think Yoda realises that as well later on, which is another thing that I appreciated about the book. It was a bit more... It allowed someone like Yoda to be a bit more reflective. Yeah. Like when he's talking to Force Ghost Qui-Gon and stuff. Um, it just... It allows Stover to fill in these details in a way that the film just doesn't really have time for. Yes. Because yeah. you get like a hint of it. Obviously, he's telling Obi-Wan about, you know, he's made contact with Qui-Gon and the Force <laughs> and everything. But in terms of like Yoda actually feeling his regret about the way things have gone and... I think I actually have a quote. There's something about Yoda realising that the way he was training... Oh, he's talking to Force Ghost Qui-Gon. Too old I was, too rigid, too arrogant to see that the old way is not the only way. These Jedi I trained to become the Jedi who had trained me long centuries ago, but those ancient Jedi, of a different time they were, changed has the galaxy. Changed the Order did not, because let it change, I did not. Yeah. That's huge. (laughs) Yeah. No, and that's great. That's like the ultimate growth, isn't it? When he's like 800 years old or something. It is, and I I kind of wish that that acknowledgement of those failures from Yoda were in the movie because obviously George couldn't go back in time to make sure it was included in Empire, like when he's training Luke, but I'd really love to see that explored and like, you know, the sequel trilogy would have been the ideal place or even like post-sequels if it had ended in a place where like Rey could have been learning about alternative ways to train young Jedi and just kind of challenging the place that the Jedi have previously 
made for themselves in the galaxy and kind of evolving that and obviously like loot touches upon it too but like it just never re- kind of goes beyond that um but we've got yoda acknowledging it here you know the prequel jedi in in the order that they had at that point was already um out of date you know they hadn't moved on but the sith had and that's why they won yeah I feel like if there is ever a sequel, sequel trilogy, that's exactly what it would need to do, you know, to justify its own existence. <laughs> you know? I just hope that that was where the sequel's going to go in the end with like Ray and Kylo, and it just didn't really happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a separate conversation. Let's not <laughs> but yeah, I re- I'm I was really happy to see that from Yoda because like one of the reasons some people don't really like Yoda as a character is because he never really. I mean, I guess in his scene with Luke and the last jedi he does acknowledge the failures doesn't he yeah he does um, yeah he realized he fucked up basically <laughs> excuse my bad language but <laughs> he just did but it, i just really liked the, the thought of him talking to qui-gon about it as well because it's kind of like acknowledging that he probably should have listened to qui-gon a bit more yeah. as well in that conversation he positions himself as the student to qui-gon's master yes. there you know which again is like a great exercise in humility for him so yeah yeah it's really good um okay so then this novel also of course has several excellent seduction scenes um with anakin and palpatine there's many of them i I, honestly i could probably have chosen any of them but for for whatever reason i chose this one um do you want to read it or should i have a go kirsty it's Um, from good okay cool it's from good as a point of view good as a point of view anakin and the jedi concept of good is not the only valid one take your dark lord to the sith for example from my reading, I have gathered that the Sith believed in justice and security every bit as much as the Jedi. Jedi believe in justice and peace. In these troubled times, is there a difference? Palpatine asked mildly. The Jedi have not done a stellar job of bringing peace to the galaxy. You must agree. Who's to say the Sith might not have done better? This is another of those arguments you probably shouldn't bring up in front of the Council, if you know what I mean, Anakin replied with a disbelieving smile. Oh, yes, because the Sith would be a threat to the Jedi Order's power. Lesson one. Anakin shook his head. Because the Sith are evil. From a Jedi's point of view, Palpatine allowed. Evil is a label we all put on those who threaten us, isn't it? Yet the Sith and the Jedi are similar in almost every way, including their quest for greater power. The Jedi's quest is for greater understanding, Anakin countered. For greater knowledge of the Force, which brings with it greater power, does it not? Well, yes, Anakin had to laugh. I should know better than to argue with a politician. We're not arguing, Anakin, we're just talking. Palpatine shifted his weight, settling in comfortably. Perhaps the real difference between the Jedi and the Sith lies only in their orientation. A Jedi gains gains power through understanding, and a Sith gains understanding through power. This is the true reason the Sith have always been more powerful than the Jedi. The Jedi fear the dark side so much they cut themselves off from the most important aspect of life, passion, of any kind. They don't even allow themselves to love. Except for me, Anakin thought but then I've never been exactly the perfect Jedi. The Sith do not fear the dark side. The Sith have no fear. They embrace the whole spectrum of experience from the heights of transcendent joy to the depths of hatred and despair. Beings have these emotions for a reason, Anakin. That is why the Sith are more powerful. They are not afraid to feel. The Sith rely on passion for strength, Anakin said, but when that passion runs dry, what's left? Perhaps nothing. Perhaps a great deal. Perhaps it never runs dry at all. Who can say? Palpatine's so good at this. It's great. Yeah, he's like, we're just having a talk. It's just hypotheticals. <laughs> but I just happen to know a lot about the Sith. <laughs> and yeah, 
I just, I guess I love it so much because it feels so plausible, you know, like, and again, obviously Anakin, he is a bit gullible, you know, and he admits himself, um, I'm not sure if I have the quote in here, but at some point he says, like, I don't understand metaphors. <laughs> it's like, so he, he owns the fact that he's not the most, like, sophisticated person, you know, and I, that does make him more vulnerable to what Palpatine's doing. But I think Palpatine makes everything he says so compelling and seem so reasonable that, yeah, you understand why Anakin is seduced at the end of the day. And I think that's one of the great strengths of the book. Yeah, just the way that Palpatine's able to phrase things as if it's like, <laughs> it is like the moral relativism of it. It's like, we're just talking. It's They just kind of have the same goals in mind. It's no big deal. And it, even the way he does it when Mace Windu finally confronts him, he's like, well, what's wrong with a Sith being the Chancellor? It's just a different faith. We just have a slightly different point of I view. Love that. <laughs> I love that so much. I think, isn't that part of the recording that he does for like the yeah. Senate as well? He's like, I think you'll find in the Constitution. <laughs> It's perfectly acceptable for me to be Chancellor. It's like, is it? Okay, okay. Guess what's what's You're the big deal? You're breaching my religious freedoms. Yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant. Oh my gosh. Um, and yeah, and this draws attention to an aspect of the Sith that's always confused me, because you know, in theory, it sounds great. You know, they always talk about how, oh yeah, we can feel all the emotions. We're so passionate. We can feel love. We can feel hate. But in practice, they only really seem to feel hate. <laughs> Yeah, hey, anger, and it is all based on fear as well, isn't it? Yeah. So it's like you, you're you're scaredy cats. Yeah, Palpatine's <laughs> basically selling a false bill of goods. You know, it's, it wasn't like Anakin was ever going to live in blissful passion with Padme um, at the end of this. But I really think that part of Anakin had the idea in his head, and oh, yeah, it's just sad and a bit cringe. Yeah, he he definitely has this expectation when he goes to Padme and he's like, well, you'll come and live with me now and you'll be safe. It's like, what about Padme's life? Yeah. Like, what about everything? You've just destroyed the galaxy for her and there's nothing left. Exactly. And we're going to have that what conversation. What about your child? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really grim, I think. But even at that point, he's like, well, I'm going to kill Palpatine and then the galaxy will be ours. You know, he's completely gone down that path of like nothing will be enough at that point. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, when I see that sort of nonsense, I'm always reminded of why it's good that the Sith have the rule of two because I just can't imagine the absolute chaos if it was like a bunch of them trying to like kill each other constantly, which I guess is what the old Sith that used is to be. So. Yeah, isn't that one of the backstories for? The, is it the Ninth Jedi? Or yeah, like um, in, one in of Visions. the stories from Visions. Yeah, there was like, oh yeah, there were lots of Sith and then they all killed each other. <laughs> yes. Oh, it was the duel, right? Yes, you're right. I can't yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. Which, yeah, I can absolutely see it. Highly plausible. <laughs> um, yeah, then I think one of the most brilliant like pieces of writing in the book, one of my favourites, is how it describes Anakin's reaction after realising that Palpatine is Sidious. And I think one of the reasons I loved this so much is because in the film, it takes place so quickly. There's no, like time for Anakin to like download anything you know or sit with anything you know it just feels like a very like sudden change in like allegiance for him you know when he does move over to be with Palpatine whereas everything's much more gradual and subtle in the book um yep so could you read this section please Kirsty from this is how it feels mm -hmm. this is how it feels to be Anakin Skywalker right now you don't remember putting away your lightsaber you don't remember moving from Palpatine's private office to his larger public one. 
You don't remember collapsing in the chair where you now sit, nor do you remember drinking water from the half-empty glass that you find in your mechanical hand. You remember only that the last man in the galaxy you still thought you could trust has been lying to you since the day you met, and you're not even angry about it, only stunned. After all, Anakin, you are the last man who has a right to be angry at someone for keeping a secret. What else was I to do? I'll turn you over to the Jedi Council. They'll know what to do. I'm sure they will. They're already planning to overthrow the Republic. You'll give them exactly the excuse they're looking for. And when they come to execute me, will that be justice? Will they be bringing peace? They won't. They wouldn't. Well, of course. I hope you're correct, Anakin. You'll forgive me if I don't share your blind loyalty to your comrades. I suppose it does indeed com come down in the end to a question of loyalty, he said thoughtfully. That's what you must ask yourself, my boy, whether your loyalty is to the Jedi or to the Republic. It's not. It's not like that. Palpatine lifted his shoulders. Perhaps not. Perhaps it's simply a question of whether you love Obi-Wan Kenobi more than you love your wife. There's no more searching for words. There are no longer words at all. Take your time. Meditate on it. I will still be here when you decide. Inside your head there is only fire. Around your heart the dragon whispers that all things die. This is how it feels to be Anakin Skywalker right now. Palpatine's a genius for phrasing it as Obi-Wan versus Padme. It's completely lifting himself from the equation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's nothing to do with me. <laughs> and it's all about playing with and manipulating Anakin's actual attachments. Because it is a question for him. Because he does genuinely love and care about Obi-Wan. You know, and he has obviously been trying to, to the best of his abilities to remain loyal to the Jedi, even though he has all these frustrations and resentments with them. And yeah, I think Obi-Wan, in this context, in the way that Palpatine positions it, he's just like a proxy for the whole Jedi Order. And yeah, of course, we know which way Anakin's going to go, you know, what you want to do, have your like hot wife or like be with the Jedi. And it's like, yeah, I'll have my wife, please. Um... But yeah, it's such a brutal, brutal choice to give him. And of course, it's a false one. But, oh, yeah, he's just so good. Palpatine just knows what he's doing. I, I really admire it, to be honest. I wouldn't admire it in real life, you know, <laughs> but in terms of, like, a villain and how he's written and how he's set up, he's he's really damn good, you know. It's, like, respect. So, yeah. Yeah. I know you don't want to do this, but it kind of drives home more of our issues with the Rise of Skywalker because Palpatine does not seem such a political genius in that film. <laughs> I have to think, Kirsty, that by that point he'd gone a bit senile, to be honest. <laughs> I just don't understand what happened there because it's like, you're not making any sense. <laughs> yeah, it is annoying. It, it does annoy me because there's just so much there for him to manipulate with Rey and Kylo. You know, he would have had a field day with them if he were like on yeah. top form. But he obviously wasn't, so he was just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Doesn't even seem to realise that they're in love. No. <laughs> Whereas with Anakin and Padme, he obviously knew all along. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I feel like, um, yeah, he's like you know, like an elderly relative, like nodding off in a chair, kind of, of like occasion. <laughs> nodding off in his crane. <laughs> yeah, nodding off in his crane. <laughs> But let's tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of like a baby bouncer, you know, like how like babies have those things and they're like strings and they bounce. But no, no, I need to stop. I need to stop. Okay, cool. So let's move on. Um, we're on our penultimate Anakin quote, um, which, yeah, I know that we have a lot of Anakin quotes, but it's super important. You know, his story is the story of this book, basically. So yes, yeah, the one I wanted to spend the most time on, I think. 
Uh, yes, yeah, so the next quote I have is the moment when Anakin becomes Darth Vader. See, could you read from Rise Darth Vader, Kirsty? Rise Darth Vader. The Sith Lord, who had once been a Jedi hero called Anakin Skywalker, stood, drawing himself up to his full height, but he looked not outward upon his new master, nor upon the planet city beyond, nor out into the galaxy that they would soon rule. He instead turned his gaze inward. He unlocked the furnace gate within his heart and stepped forth to regard with new eyes the cold freezing dread of the dead star dragon that had haunted his life. I am Darth Vader, he said within himself. The dragon tried again to whisper of failure and weakness and inevitable death, but with one hand the Sith Lord caught it, crushed away its voice. It tried to rise then, to coil and rear and strike, but the Sith Lord laid his other hand upon it and broke its power with a single effortless twist. I am Darth Vader he repeated as he ground the dragon's corpse to dust beneath his mental heel, as he watched the dragon's dust and ashes scatter before the blast from his furnace heart, and you, you are nothing at all. He had become finally what they all called him, the hero of no fear. Yeah. And again, I feel like this is almost like a more powerful realisation of what's going on when Anakin becomes Darth Vader than like, anything in the film. Because it was interesting to me that, obviously in the film, you obviously don't literally see Anakin killing the children, but you see everything leading up to Anakin killing those, like, toddlers, basically. <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's really brutal, but it's just, like, a bit grim and violent and sad, and you see that he's, like, becoming evil. But you don't get much insight into his interior, you know, but this, bros, this is all insight into his interior, and it just drives home exactly why he's done this, because he wants to kill his own fear. He wants to kill that fear inside him, which is what that dragon has always represented. And for the, for a moment, it seems like he succeeded, but obviously there's more to come. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah, just so well done. And it, I just love the way that this metaphor is like expanded and progressed as the novel goes on. You know, it's a lot of the time a metaphor is used as like a one-off thing. You know, and it's rare to see one that's visualised and developed as thoroughly as this one is. Because it's, like, the key to understanding, like, Anakin's progression through the story. Yeah. I honestly think that something like this could have worked within the movie itself. It would have just kind of shown more of the, like, the mystical aspect of the Force and been a bit more abstract. But I think it might have done a better job for people. Kind of what it does here, that it, like speaks to Anakin's fundamental motivations in a way that maybe people don't necessarily fully understand. Because it's like, otherwise, it's like, why is he acting like an idiot? Like, what what is he doing? How does he not pick up on what Palpatine's doing? Or does he really think that this is the best thing for Padme or the galaxy? But what's fundamental is that he's trying to crush that fear inside himself. And it, obviously, it doesn't work in the end. Um but it's that's a very relatable feeling, right? That like, if someone hands you this idea of, you know, especially given all the pressure that Anakin is under and like how he is kind of looked up to as the Jedi with no fear, and but he knows deep down that he is desperately afraid of lots of things and afraid of all these things that he could lose. Um, you can kind of understand the temptation a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, it's kind of at a point where you don't want to see any of yourself in this person, you know, because obviously he's doing really abhorrent things. But it kind of forces you to confront, like, how human it all is, you know, and how vulnerable he is. 
and yeah, I, I just really like that. It's quite bold in it's like radical empathy, you know, like empathize with Darth Vader, the monster. <laughs> and again, it's not just doing that at a moment when he's being redeemed or when he's like showing compassion for his son. It's doing that when he's at his worst, you know, when he's like trying to like stamp down upon all his like fear and all his frailties, because a lot of the time I think that's something we all want to do. You know, none of us want to be afraid. None of us want to be frightened. And we will sometimes like do stupid things in an effort to like repel that, you know, Um, Mm. obviously not to the lengths of Darth Vader, but (laughs) we go a little way down that path sometimes. And yeah, it's good to be reminded of that, I think. Yeah. Okay. And then we have the very, very final quote that I have for Anakin here. Um, So, yep. Could you read from You Loved Her? You loved her. You will always love her. You could never will her death. Never. But you remember. You remember all of it. You remember the dragon that you brought Vader for from your heart to slay. You remember the cold venom in Vader's blood. You remember the furnace of Vader's fury and the black hatred of seizing her throat to silence her lying mouth. And there is one blazing moment in which you finally understand that there was no dragon, that there was no Vader, that there was only you, only Anakin Skywalker. That it was all of you, is you, only you. You did it. You killed her. You killed her because finally when you could have saved her, when you could have gone away with her, when you could have been thinking about her, you were thinking about yourself. It's in this blazing moment that you finally understand the trap of the dark side, the final cruelty of the Sith, because now yourself is all you will ever have. It's savage, isn't it? It is. And obviously we know that that's not how Padme died in the end. It was, sure. She does die of a broken heart, effectively. But I guess it's all his actions conspired. Yeah, to Anakin is the one who broke her heart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. His, his choices. He was yeah. responsible, even if it wasn't necessarily because he like did that to her. And even you know, I have seen the film Revenge of the Sith so many times, but there's something about the way it's described how he treats Padme when she gets to Mustafar here that's quite shocking. Yeah, you know, it's incredibly cruel and selfish. Yeah, it's like, you know, I'm scarred from Raylo discourse, so I almost don't want to touch on it. But in the novel, the framing of that final encounter of Padme and Anakin on Mustafar, that does feel like an absolutely toxic, abusive relationship. It almost, it he just turns into a different person at that point. It's like everything that she does, he's interpreting as like um, a betrayal and that she's turned into a different person. So he almost hates her in that moment. Yeah. It's, it is quite shocking, because we know that Anakin loves Padme, but at that point he's just been so poisoned. Yeah, so I think what this is getting across to us, with you know how Anakin connects it with the dragon, like there w- never was a dragon, you know, it was always him. And that mm. kind of suggests that in that moment of transformation, where he felt he was becoming Vader, he wasn't really transforming, he was just killing a critical part of himself because obviously it's not pleasant to fear and be frightened and be afraid but it's fundamental to your humanity Yeah, you're afraid of things for a reason Yeah, exactly, and if you kill that part of yourself, you're fundamentally changing something about yourself that's important and valuable and I think that's what positions him to be like that to Padme, you know, to be so utterly awful basically um towards the end of the story and yeah i again it all just comes back to clarity with this book you know and there's clarity there 
in that progression of the character and that downfall for him that I think just isn't there in the new film. And yeah, it is very fun. disturbing, honestly, even like for a, a book that's like ostensibly for, for younger people, you know, that Star Wars is for kids. When you think about it, that like he's so afraid of losing her that he'll behave like this to her yeah, and still manage to convince himself that it's like for her benefit. It's, it is really scary. Yeah, it's proper grim. Um, gosh, but yeah, that is the story in potted form of Anakin Skywalker <laughs> in this novelization. And yeah, I think just running through those quotes, obviously there's so much more going on in the book itself, you know, that we just wouldn't possibly have time to talk about honestly doing this exercise i think we could probably do like five podcasts on this book <laughs> you know focusing on de- in detail on all the different characters but yeah people would probably get sick of that pretty fast <laughs> so <laughs> trying to condense it um but yeah do you have any final words to say about anakin before we move on to obi-wan it should be quicker but i think it just it whenever i revisit the prequels it always kind of hits home why i always feel so sad about vader in the original trilogy because i'm coming at it from the perspective of that's him at he's anakin in there and he's like entombed in this costume and he's effectively like dead until luke comes into his life and like awakens that human side of himself again yes it's just so sad (laughs) i think it's why i always struggled with the part where he comes in and massacres everyone in Rogue One I'm like this is not badass this is horrible that's Anakin yeah no exactly it's like I watched that and I'm like I can't relate <laughs> it's horrible it's just yeah we need Luke to come along and rescue yeah. him his life's a walking nightmare but yeah so with Obi-Wan I must admit I have much less material on Obi-Wan and it's not because he's not important in the book he is he's probably the second protagonist next to Anakin and like his journey throughout the book is often really paralleled closely to Anakin's. But I think one of the clever things that the novel does is it has a really close grip on the irony of the story, you know, and it takes things that in the movie can feel a bit tedious or like filler. And it totally recognises that that's what they are. Because, you know, Obi-Wan going off on that mission to kill Grievous is a pure distraction. You know, it's purely it is, because, yeah, it's a trap. Yeah. yeah, it's because Palpatine needs him out of the way so he can seduce Anakin. And the novel is completely explicit in describing it as a Jedi trap, you know. And I just love the like knowing quality of those sections. They're really good. But I think it yeah. it's really good in a way that like makes it clear to the audience that that's what Lucas was doing with the story. Because... Again, that might not quite come across in you know, why Obi-Wan's the one who's been sent on that mission. But like the, the book really drives home that like it's Palpatine pushing for Obi-Wan. Well, the Jedi as well, because they don't, they don't trust Anakin. They want him there under their thumb. But like all of that is very much by design. So as you say, Anakin is right there for Palpatine to turn to the dark side. And Obi-Wan, who's like the one person who could maybe get in the way of that, it's gone. Yep. Um, yeah, and the way that that is made clear in the book is, is really good. Yeah, exactly. So it's all great stuff. And again, one of many reasons why people should read the book. Um, but because it's so closely tied to, you know, a lot of the action stuff of Grievous, I didn't include quotes from that. Um, because, yeah, we could just go on and on, basically. So I chose to focus on just two quotes. One from the beginning of Obi-Wan's story, which sets him up. And one from the end, which basically interacts with that early quote. Um, Yeah, for reasons we'll explain. 
Yeah, so could you read Obi-Wan's introduction summary, which I'm sure the careful listener will realise parallels Anakin's. So, yeah. This is Obi-Wan Kenobi, a phenomenal pilot who doesn't like to fly, a devastating warrior who'd rather not fight, a negotiator without peer who frankly prefers to sit alone in a quiet cave and meditate, Jedi Master, general in the Grand Army of the Republic, member of the Jedi Council, and yet inside he feels like he's none of these things. Inside, he still feels like a Padawan. It is a truism of the Jedi Order that a Jedi Knight's education truly begins only when he becomes a master. That everything important about being a master is learned from one student. Obi-Wan feels the truth of this every day. He sometimes dreams of when he was a Padawan, in fact as well as feeling. He dreams that his own master, Qui-Gon Jinn, did not die at the plasma fuel generator core in Theed. He dreams that his master's wise guiding hand is still with him. But Qui-Gon's death is an old pain one with which he long ago came to terms. A Jedi does not cling to the past. He is respected throughout the Jedi Order for his insight as well as his warrior skill. He has become the hero of the next generation of Padawans. He is the Jedi their masters hold up as a model. He is the being that the Council assigns to their most important missions. He is modest, centred and always kind. He is the ultimate Jedi and he is proud to be Anakin Skywalker's best friend. (laughs) <laughs> so wholesome so yeah wholesome. Tell, tell you what, reading this book also got me excited uh, again for the Kenobi series yes no and I 100% see that because yeah they really make you feel how much Obi-Wan loved Anakin and I really really hope that's like a huge part of this new show you know like having Obi-Wan deal with that you know because it's not something you would get over in a hurry like Jedi or not hmm and what particularly, like, from the novel made you excited for the Obi-Wan show? I guess just as you say, like, the, the love between these two characters and the absolute heartbreak of Anakin's betrayal and Obi-Wan's feeling of failure. Yeah. Um, and again, like, kind of the conversation that he has with Yoda at the end, like, realising that he can still he can talk to Qui-Gon and in some ways Qui-Gon was the ultimate Jedi, like... I have no idea if Qui-Gon will show up in, in that show, but I don't know. It just kind of came full circle in a nice way that I'm kind of interested to see where Obi-Wan is at psychologically at that point, like whether he's kind of just pinning all his hopes on Luke for the future or if he is still kind of looking back and thinking of what could have been had he done things differently with Anakin. Yeah, I really hope whoever wrote the script for the Obi-Wan show, so I can't remember off the top of my head, read this book. Because, again, I know it's technically Legends, but I still think it's like a really, really great like read of that character, you know, and a really great encapsulation of him. So, yeah, I'd hope that, but I don't expect it. So, yeah, yeah, we'll find out. Really, Anakin is the closest thing that Obi-Wan has to family. Yeah. Like, he does think of the Jedi Order <clears throat> in general as family, because um, he obviously never knew his biological family. Um but really it's that brother relationship with Anakin that's that's probably at least like in in the movies and the novelizations I know we have Satine as well but it's Anakin that is his big personal attachment in his life right exactly and like almost against his own instincts because this opening and this introduction to Obi-Wan it makes such a point of emphasizing how Obi-Wan's the model Jedi you know and he knows that you're not meant to have attachments 
Um, but yeah, he still values Anakin in this really intense way despite that. And obviously it's not framed in any way as like a bad thing or a danger. But obviously later on it like comes back to bite him, basically, you know, the like intensity of that like friendship and that feeling that he has for him. I think it was crushing as well is how well Obi-Wan knows Anakin because when the the Jedi Council like kind of get Anakin to spy on Palpatine, Obi-Wan tries to explain to them how that's going to make Anakin feel. Yeah. And he's right. You know, he's like, as far as he's concerned, like you've already asked him to like he sees you as an enemy now because you've asked him to betray his friend like this and he values loyalty above anything. Yeah. It's just yeah. It's just so much going on with it. I love it. <laughs> Poor Obi Wan. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just such a shit situation. <laughs> None of it's his fault, and I'm sure he feels like it's his fault. So it's really sad. And yeah, and again, I just love these. You know, this is blah openings because this one in particular is such a perfect counterpoint to Anakin's. You know, because whereas Anakin is like brimming over with attachments, you know, to all these different people, like. Obi-Wan like he he's like Anakin's best friend and that's like his one attachment here um and like whereas Anakin's like a bit of like a renegade you know and like doing his own thing like Obi-Wan's like oh I just want to be in a cave (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of like miraculous that they're friends considering what radically different people they are but that's the beauty of friendship sometimes it can bring very different people together so (laughs) yeah Okay, and then we have the like finale, essentially, to Obi-Wan's emotional journey, particularly relative to Anakin. So could you read out that section, please, Kirsty? The man he faced was everything Obi-Wan had devoted his life to destroying. Murderer, traitor, fallen Jedi, Lord of the Sith. And here and now, despite it all, Obi-Wan still loved him. Yoda had said it flat out. Allow such attachments to pass out of one's life, a Jedi must. But Obi-Wan had never let himself understand. He'd argued for Anakin, made excuses, covered for him again and again and again. All the while, this attachment he denied even feeling had blinded him to the dark path his best friend walked. Obi-Wan knew there was, in the end, only one answer for attachment. He let it go. That's probably the hardest thing Obi-Wan ever had to do. Yeah, exactly. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. And... Yeah, it just comes through so powerfully here, particularly by positioning it. So you know this is like a bookend, you know, like to that first quote that ends with Auntie's proud to call himself Anakin Skywalker's best friend, you know, and that is as close as Obi-Wan gets to attachment in the context of this book. I know that there's Satine and stuff later, but she didn't exist when this was written, so it doesn't count. Um, And yeah, it's just, again, so simple, but so powerful and so well done. And especially that part about how, you know, even though Anakin's almost like a monster at this point and he's done all these terrible deeds, Obi-Wan still loves him. You know, he still has that, like, care for him. And, or just the pain it must have been to, like, relinquish that. It's, yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about. Yeah, I think for for Obi-Wan there, he's, like, recognising that his love had almost caused him to enable Anakin in those behaviours and blinded him to what Anakin was really doing and where his character was going yeah exactly so he kind of like chose to like turn a blind eye to like anakin and padme which is pretty clear because he obviously suspected something was happening for a long time but he looked away because obviously he was his best friend and yeah yeah, that maybe wasn't the best thing Mm. so yeah honestly reading this book it just reinforced for me that anakin just should have left the jedi order and married to padme 
you know, yeah. and been open about it. <laughs> Isn't there a point where he thinks that to himself? Yeah. He thinks that he should have just left the Jedi. I do think that does come up, yeah. And obviously yeah. that's the choice Padme offers him at the end as well. You know, Mustafar, she's like, look, just come away with me. You know, leave all this behind. But obviously at that point, he's done so much. It doesn't seem like a realistic option, but I think it's a realistic option from her point of view. And at one point, that would have been something he'd wanted. But yeah, obviously it's too late then. And yeah, it's just shit. It's just shit. The situation these characters <laughs> are in, it's awful. Um, yeah, so I can see that the next thing I have is the section on Palpatine, but I really don't think we need a separate section on Palpatine for the reason I said earlier about, mm. you know, he's only exists in relation to the other characters. So, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and we're already going quite long, and I really, at the very least, I still want to do Padme properly because yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, okay, cool. Is there anything left that you want to say about Obi Wan before we move on? I feel bad. So I know we've like really given him a short shrift compared to Anakin. No, I mean, we can always come back to Obi Wan. Maybe before the the show, we can have a spotlight on him. Yeah, and kind of cover him throughout the the years. Yeah, that would be a really good idea actually, because yeah, it's a character I've often. Like overlooked a bit, you know, so doing like a really close up look on Obi-Wan would be really worthwhile at some point. I think the Sky Talkers girls actually have a whole series on him. Wow. They did earlier in the year, so <laughs> I'd recommend that to people. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure if I should listen to that or like avoid it to, for fear of like accidentally plagiarizing them. <laughs> but you should <laughs> listen, dear them. listener. <laughs> as but, long as you recommend it. Yeah. Verbal plagiarism. I don't know if that's a thing, but. <laughs> um. Okay, so then the next lead character that we want to talk about is Padme. Um, and I'd say Padme, relative to the other two, she definitely gets less. Like, she's less of a prominent character. And there's also less material that's really about her and her own right, I guess. You know, it's very much about her existence in relation to Anakin, which is, is very much how it is in the film. But I do feel it does a lot more for her character by also really giving you a sense of what the relationship is costing her, you know, personally, and also how she's repeatedly put in really difficult situations of being torn between her love for Anakin and her morals, you know, and her obligations as a senator and all these other things. And yeah, I appreciated that. So I feel like she's definitely given the short straw in the film, I think, of, Re- of Revenge of the Sith, and she comes across much better in the book, I think. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think if George had found a way to keep those scenes in where she is like forming what would become the rebellion, that would have made all the difference in the world. Yeah. Um, so the book is very important for that reason because all of that stuff feels very seamless in you know the character's story and the evolution and the way that that is contrasted at the time with Anakin starting to go down the path with Palpatine. That all flows really well together. Yes. Like it makes me sad all over again that we don't get that in the movie. I think it could have worked really well. Yeah. No, it did encourage me to go back and watch those deleted scenes and I was like, oh, it just adds so much to the movie. You know, not just like Padme in the movie, but the movie as a whole, you know, it's, it's also important for Bale and Yeah, I was gonna say Bale is great in this book as well. He really you get is. More... Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just sad I didn't have time to like cover him you know my notes but maybe we could do a bail organa spotlight discussion at some point he might show up in the obi-wan show you never know if he does then um, yeah, yeah i'm still waiting for an older on series yeah i would honestly <laughs> love that i really really hope he does show up because i just know he'd be the best dad and i want to actually see him and leia interact so yeah hopefully one day 
Um, okay, cool. So could you read Padme's introductory summary, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. This is Padme Amidala. She is an astonishingly accomplished young woman who in her short life has been already the youngest ever elected queen of her planet, a daring partisan guerrilla, and a measured, articulate, and persuasive voice of reason in the Republic Senate. But she is, at this moment, none of these things. She can still play at them. She pretends to be a senator. She still wields the moral authority of a former queen, and she is not shy about using her reputation for fierce physical courage to her advantage in political debate. But her inmost reality, the most fundamental, unbreakable core of her being, is something entirely different. She's Anakin Skywalker's wife. Yet wife is a word too weak to carry the truth of her. Wife is such a small word, such a common word, a word that can come from a downturned mouth with so many petty, unpleasant echoes. For Padme Amidala, saying I am Anakin Skywalker's wife is saving neither more nor less than I am alive. Her life before Anakin belonged to someone else, some lesser being to be pitied, some poor, impoverished spirit who could never suspect how profoundly life should be lived. Her real life began the first time she looked into Anakin Skywalker's eyes and found in there not the uncritical worship of little Annie from Tatooine, but the direct, unashamed, smouldering passion of a powerful Jedi, a young man to be sure, but every centimetre a man, a man whose legend was already growing within the Jedi Order and beyond. He is not a perfect man. He is prideful and moody and quick to anger, but these faults only make her love him the more, for his every flaw is more than balanced by the greatness within him his capacity for joy and cleansing laughter, his extraordinary generosity of spirit, his passionate devotion not only to her, but also in the service of every living being. He is a wild creature who has come gently to her hand, a vine tiger purring against her cheek. Every softness of his touch, every kind glance or loving word is a small miracle in itself. How can she not be grateful for such gifts? I've, like, people will laugh at me for saying this, but this gives me, like, Wolverine Heights vibes. Um, and obviously it's not similar in terms of the style of the writing you know it's very very different but just in terms of that like absolutely like giddy like totally oblivious to the rest of the world emotional quality of being like completely obsessed with the person you're in love with you know that kind of like mania of love yeah and how as you say it's manic and and dangerous and damaging yeah Exactly. I feel like all those people who are like, Wuthering Heights isn't a love story would like this book because it's like, this is when it, how it all goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, it is a love story. It's just one that doesn't go very well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like Emily Bronte was like that badass bitch who decided that she wasn't going to moralise about it because she was just telling a story and that's how it went. It was really bad. And yeah, but that's a tangent. So I'm going to stop. I feel I feel quite mixed on this and I think it's because I think the book probably does as much as it could with the way that Padme is positioned within the story Mm. but as it acknowledges she is positioned primarily as Anakin's wife because it's Anakin's story and there's only so much you can do with that because if you if you divorced her from that in a way like it would weaken the the core of the story and why he does what he does uh, I just wish Padme could be seen more as a character in her own right and I think that's why I love the sequel trilogy so much because it kind of turns that on its head right yes um, absolutely the Padme becomes so, the hero yeah so I think that's that's helped me a lot with the way Padme is treated within the story I see Rey as kind of the mirror image of that no 100% so. um yeah, the Anadala parallels are real. And it's not just about 
like recycling those characters you know in like younger bodies is very much about kind of like correcting certain aspects of them as well and yeah yeah. getting the story from her perspective exactly um which is really important um because yeah i i know what you mean i feel like this is the best way it could have been done you know how it's positioned in this novel because it's just how the character is in this particular story you know it's how george lucas envisaged padme in revenge of the sith um but yeah like it is a, a bit of a shame so i feel like just in terms of like the total package i think i preferred padme in the novelization of attack of the clones but that's because i feel like in that book obviously it's still very much about her love story of anakin but i did feel like i got more of a sense of just her you know in her own right as well um and there's less of that here for obvious reasons yeah so i i can live with it i'm not i don't hate it i think it's it it's almost the way it's like challenging you when it does like oh well she can play act at all those accomplishments these days but what it's really about for padme is that she's anakin's wife yeah no <laughs> okay yeah you're really driving it home here yeah no exactly it's not a great look it, it is great as an insight into her emotional state but yeah just as a choice i think is i think yeah. as well it's such a contrast from the way she's depicted in attack of the clones and i i know again these scenes were deleted in the movie but if we're going by the novelization there's this real emphasis on her having like these close relationships with her family and like her niece and nephew and her sister and her parents and all of that's kind of stripped away here and that kind of adds to how isolated she seems to be and how dependent on Anakin um as that primary relationship in her life yeah it's like all her other relationships have been stripped away apart from Bale he's like the only and and Obi-Wan yeah so I'm just like undermining myself now but I mean yeah yeah, but Obi-Wan's in her life because he's Anakin's master yeah or was you know that is true so I guess it really is just Bale (laughs) (laughs) who's like a co-worker and yes they're friends too but not the same as having her actual family around her yeah and actually if you think about that it's almost like she has like a progressively smaller circle from movie to movie you know like in Phantom Menace she's obviously surrounded by all these other young women of the same age to her and then obviously you know like a whole beve of like attendants and pilots and just lots and lots of people around Padme then in Attack of the Clone she does still have like a handmaiden who she's close to she still has like a pilot and and then like it's mostly Anakin and then here it's basically just Anakin because yeah it's questionable whether Bale counts (laughs) yeah part of me wonders if that's by design like from George's perspective for the sake of Padme's story and and her motivations or if it's just in service to Anakin Mm. yeah I'd love to ask him that question I feel like the answer would probably be the latter but I might just be being too cynical so Mm. not sure um okay I I I know I've been letting Kirsty do most of the reading, but I really want to read this one because I find it funny. So, okay. <laughs> so this is Padme trying to reassure Anakin after he has a dream of her dying in childbirth. I'm, I'm sorry, this isn't actually that funny because obviously it's a sad context, but I just find a particular description funny. This dream will not become real. She nodded. I didn't think it would. He blinked. You didn't? This is Coruscant, Annie. Not Tatooine. Women don't die in childbirth on Coruscant, not even the Twilighters in the down levels. And I have a top flight medical droid who assures me I'm in perfect health. Your dream must have been some kind of metaphor or something. I. My dreams are literal, Padme. I wouldn't know a metaphor if it bit me. 
<laughs> oh, it's such a classic line. And what's the other um, line you sent me, Kirsty, that you love from Anakin that's like of a similar school to this? Oh, I think that's in Attack of the Clones when... Um... Oh, what does he say? It's about oh, you're asking me... Yeah, he says, and it's in the movie, he says, you're asking me to be rational. That is something I know I cannot do. <laughs> it's just these glimpses of self-awareness from Anakin. Yeah. <laughs> he knows he's a, a ridiculous, melodramatic character. But it is kind of like stepping outside of the story a little. To <laughs> I know I'm not really meant to be a realistic human character. I'm, yeah. I'm in, a, I'm in a drama here. Exactly. Um, and... Yeah, I, I do feel like that line explains a lot. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we know Anakin. You definitely don't understand metaphor. <laughs> you don't understand the dragon that's inside you, that's for sure. But I think in a way, uh, this is complicated because obviously the reaction to Anakin should not be to freak out and like, go to all costs to you know, destroy the entire galaxy for the sake of Padme's life. Yeah. But he's in a way, he has a grip on it more than she does because it's not. he's not saying... She's necessarily well. One, they don't know if she's actually going to have the baby on Coruscant. Yes, and she, you know, and um, she ends up not dying of childbirth itself. She, I think, the droid notes that she's perfectly fine from a physical perspective, right? Yes, it's that she gives up on life because she's lost him. Yeah, exactly. She uh, loses the will to live, as they say. Um, yeah, so it's definitely not like a realistic response it's not like something that could actually happen yeah but that in itself is a metaphor exactly and i did kind of appreciate that they at least have padme be so like i don't know sensible and reasonable in response to anakin having this premonition in the film she doesn't react this way um i can't remember exactly how she reacts but it's not how i'd expect a woman who's been told that she's about to die in childbirth to react you know Um, especially interesting because you know he he in the previous film obviously had the visions of his mum and they do come to pass and she knows that yeah so you probably would expect her to be a little more concerned yeah no that's <laughs> true yeah i i guess like i think in the novel i didn't include this bit it's, again it's quite a long passage i think there is like a moment where she's like a bit stunned you know and a bit like oh uh okay so i guess really even if she is really worried about it deep down she's saying this is an exercise in reassurance, isn't she? It's more about him yeah. than her, which I think is the story of Padme's life in this novel, unfortunately. Yeah. It's also like Padme has an acceptance that he he doesn't. And I guess it's like the other characters do as well in that like, well, people die. Yes. You know, sometimes that happens and you have to live with it. And Anakin is just completely unwilling to. Yeah. And I guess it is because of how he lost Shmi. Exactly. Yeah, really messed him up. Yeah, could you read the um, next quote I have, which is from when Padme is at a meeting of the senators? Mm -hmm. Stop, Padme Rose. It's better to leave some things unsaid. Right now, it's better I don't know anything about anything. Don't make me lie to my husband, was her unspoken plea. She tried to convey it with her eyes. Please, Bale, don't make me lie to him. It will break his heart. Perhaps he saw something there. After a moment's indecision, he nodded. Very well. We must bring no one into this secret without the agreement of each and every one of us. That includes even those closest to you, Mon Mothma added, even your families. To share anything of this will expose them to the same danger we all face. No one can be told. No one. Padme watched them all nod, and what could she do? What could she say? You can keep your own secrets, but I'll have to tell my Jedi husband, who is Palpatine's beloved protege. She sighed. Yes, yes, agreed. 
and all she could think of as the little group dispersed to their own offices was, oh, Anakin, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, and this is kind of where you really see like the fracture forming, I think, because obviously Padme is introduced as like completely head over heels in love, you know, blind to like anything, you know, that could separate her from Anakin. Whereas here, you know, she's faced, she's confronted with a choice, basically. You know, it's like, do you side for your fellow senators to try and fight back against Pal- Palpatine and bring an end to his tyranny, or do you side with your husband? And she chooses the former because she knows deep down that that's the right thing to do, even though it breaks her heart. And yeah, and again, this is kind of why it really irks me that this sort of stuff is not in the film because it just demonstrates her strength of character. And I think that's especially important in the context of this novel where she often is just positioned as like Mrs. Anakin Skywalker, you know, so yeah. I think it highlights as well that on some level, even though she's not willing to admit it to herself yet, Padme knows that Anakin's kind of lost yeah, or at least going down this really dark path because it's like if you have to go against him by voting for democracy and taking a real stand against the tyranny of what is going to become the empire doesn't that tell you something yeah (laughs) anakin's in a pretty bad way at that point yeah if it's like well i'm gonna side with palpatine because he's my friend (laughs) like um (laughs) he's he's a dictator (laughs) (laughs) i think she like half knows it she's just not willing to face up to it at that point she's still to be fair She's right in that, like, there is a point still where Anakin could choose to come back. And, like, there was always a chance when she goes to Mustafar that he could have he could have made that choice, as you say, if she presents it to him. Um, but he doesn't take it. So. Yeah, exactly. He's given lots and lots of choices, and he always chooses that makes the bad choice. Um, okay, cool. Then could you read out from a distraught Padme saying goodbye to Anakin after she realises he's fallen to the dark side. Mm. She shook her head helplessly and a pair of tears spilled from her eyes. He touched them with his mechanical hand. The fingertips of his black glove glistened in the dawn. Two liquid gems, indescribably precious, because they were his. He had earned them, as he had earned her, as he had earned the child she bore. He had paid for them with innocent blood. I love you, he said. This won't take long. Wait for me. Fresh tears streamed onto her ivory cheeks, and she threw herself into his arms. Always, Anakin, forever. Come back to me, my love, my life, come back to me. He smiled down on her. You say that like I'm already gone. See, that's what I'm talking about. She knows. Yeah, she completely <laughs> knows. Like, yeah, yeah, she's like, oh my god, he's gone. Like, Yeah, I think honestly, when she says, like, come back to me, she's saying that as if you'd say that to someone who is already dead, you know? Yeah. It's kind yeah. of like, is the thing you crave like really deep down in your heart of hearts but at the same time you know it's impossible you know you know it's like a vain hope and yeah it's heartbreaking and reading this I've realized and I think I realized this when I put it here to be honest that this is all Anakin's perspective you know Mm. so it's more informative about how he's feeling and how he's viewing things than it is about Padme although obviously you can still discern things as we just illuminated yeah, like, I think just, like, it's so messed up. You know, he thinks of, like, Padme and the baby as things he's earned, for example, yeah. rather than, like, actual people in their own right, you know, with, like, mm. free will and their own, like, preferences and choices in life. Um, yeah, and it's just that idea of, like, reducing people to objects that, yeah, you see a lot with the Sith, actually. So, yeah, he's super far gone at this point. Yeah, yeah I think, and I think that's just, like, 
the result of that fear that he has of losing her right if he's that afraid of losing her he'll start to think of her as a thing he can lose yeah and and that translates into the possessiveness he feels when he starts to become paranoid about her relationship with obi-wan too yeah it's like she's his you know (laughs) um rather than her own her own person yeah and i I didn't include it so it's very long but there's also i think probably just prior to this there's like an exchange where anakin is basically demanding that padme like give up all her political career you know and all like her principles essentially you know and again that just conveys his total lack of respect for everything that she is you know everything that she stood for up until this point because i think part of padme's journey in this book is yeah, she's completely besotted of Anakin and deeply in love with him, but is kind of like lying to herself to think that, you know, her identity as the wife of Anakin Skywalker is the most important part of her because mm. she's taken on a journey where she's forced to confront, actually, no, I, I do still love him. I'll always love him. But at the end but of the day, important there are more important yeah. things. Yeah, and I have to stand up for those important things when I can. And yeah, Anakin just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah that's very bad. and we see a similar choice with ray at the end of the last jedi right yes but, you know she has that relationship with ben or at least it's like a burgeoning one and she makes the choice that yeah we have this connection but y- you are still on the wrong side for me and there are things that i care about more yeah exactly uh, i did want to take your hand <laughs> oh god <laughs> yeah honestly i I don't cry about Raylo anymore. I've recovered enough to be at that stage, but I did have lots of dramatic Raylo feels while reading this book because that's, yeah. yeah, that's what I like about the the different relationships that echo through the story. They are they are all kind of connected and reflect each other at different moments and inverse and stuff. Exactly, it's why we're doing this podcast. I think all those like interactions <laughs> across the eras and like all the reflections across time and parallels. Yeah, it gives us a lot to talk so that's good um yeah then there's another really crucial little part that i really liked about padme commanding bail to ple- pledge allegiance to palpatine basically so he can remain in a position of influence could you just read that out kirsty bail it's the only way it's the only hope you have of remaining in a position to do anyone any good vote for palpatine vote for the empire make mon Mothma vote for him too be good little senators mind your manners and keep your heads down and keep doing all those things we can't talk about. All those things I can't know. Promise me, Bail. Padme, what you're talking about, what we're not talking about, it could take 20 years. Are you under suspicion? What are you going to do? Don't worry about me, she said distantly. I don't know I'll live that long. I think this is her really coming to terms with how serious they are. Uh, they're in this mess. Yep. You know, and, and what Bail acknowledges there, that it could take 20 years for these political choices to come to fruition. Yeah, which it does. <laughs> yeah, it's just how how deep they're in <laughs> to this thing and how much Palpatine has succeeded. Yeah. And I think, you know, that fatalism from Padme at the end there, you know, where she's obviously like accepted her own death, basically, is a combination of, you know, being aware of Anakin's dream about her dying and also just seeing the path that Anakin's gone down because I think in her heart of hearts, she probably knows he's going to cause that death. And mm. yeah, it is just absolutely heartbreaking like total total tragedy yeah Yeah. um yep and then the final padme quote i have is when she's pleading with anakin to come away with her um and leave the dark side um this is on mustafar 
Um, and yeah, we've alluded to this, but I think it's really important. It's kind of like her bowing out, you know, her final, like, it's her final attempt, you know, to try and reach him. And yeah, I think it warrants being read. So if you could go ahead, Kirsty. New tears started, but they didn't matter. She'd never have enough tears for this. Anakin, can't we just go? Please, let's leave together today, now, before you, before something happens. Nothing will happen. Nothing can happen. Let Palpatine call himself Emperor. Let him. He can do the dirty work, all the messy, brutal oppression I'll take, it'll take to unite the galaxy forever. United against him. He'll make himself into the most hated man in history, and when the time is right, we'll throw him down. Anakin, stop! Don't you see? We'll be heroes. The whole galaxy will love us, and we will rule together. Please stop, Anakin. Please stop. I can't stand it. <laughs> he's just completely lost the plot at that point. Yeah, he's completely deranged. <laughs> Is like a more deranged version of what exactly what Kylo says to Rey in The Last Jedi. <laughs> um, because, yeah, it, it's just horrible. Um, so yeah, I guess in The Last Jedi, it's like the first state version of this. Like, this is like where there's a hell of a lot that's already happened between like Anakin and Padme. Whereas Rey and Kylo, they're still like feeling each other out in The Last Jedi. And like, Kylo goes too strong way too soon. Um, in that film and this is also way too strong but for completely different reasons and it's in a completely different context but yeah it's like look guys you've got to understand that offering a woman you know to rule the galaxy together not attractive it's not a look <laughs> need to stop need to draw a line under it <laughs> sorry i know i've been silly and just like my like Raylo obsessed self um in this section but yeah it is heartbreaking you know, and you obviously know it's going to end badly, but it doesn't stop you like wanting her to succeed somehow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And she obviously won't, but you still want it. Yeah. Like, yeah, as you say, throughout this book, I'm like, what if she could somehow get through to him? Yeah. Might need to go and dig up some like AU fan fictions for Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> there's just so many points where it could have diverged and all of them will be interesting. So, yeah super fascinating so right that wraps up us talking about the main characters in revenge of the sith um we've obviously gone quite long so unfortunately we won't be able to delve too much into the like other aspects of the novel and the other characters but yeah just go and read it please it's so good and i think all the characters get really great material in this book so yeah definitely worth checking out especially mace i don't think we've had time to touch on any of the mace stuff but he was super, super interested in this. And I know Matthew Stover's written another book where I believe Mace is the lead character. And I really, really want to read that now. So I really like oh, how really? he does Mace. Yeah, he has. Maybe we should do that then. Yeah, honestly, I would be totally game for that. I will double check am, that after. And yeah. yeah, we can look into that. I am thinking about going into Legends stuff now. Yeah, no, we still definitely both need to read The Courtship of Princess Leia. That should be our like number one priority. <laughs> okay yep just quickly um there's a great scene towards the end with yoda and it's basically after everything's happened you know i think it's on bail ship and he's communing with qui-gon jinn through the force and qui-gon has some pearls of wisdom for yoda who's obviously pretty bummed out and knows he's really deeply messed up essentially so yeah could you read it out from with my help please kirsty mm -hmm. with my help you can learn to join them with the force yet retain consciousness you can join your light to it forever, perhaps in time, even your physical self. Yoda did not move. Eternal life. 
the ultimate goal of the Sith, yet they can never achieve it. It comes only by the release of self, not the exaltation of self. It comes through compassion, not greed. Love is the answer to the darkness. Become one with the Force, yet influence still to have, Yoda mused, a power greater than all it is. It cannot be granted, it can only be taught. It is yours to learn if you wish it. So I like to think of Yoda being taught by Qui-Gon when he goes to <laughs> to take a bar. I just think that's a really nice yeah. image. No, it's really, really great. Um, because, yeah, it exemplifies, I think, something that was raised in that like early introduction to Obi-Wan. The idea of the like master only truly beginning to learn through their apprentice. You know, and like having the humility to be aware that you're always learning, you know, and that you're never like completely wise. You never, you'd never know everything there is to know. And yeah, I think that's kind of what Yoda's realizing, you know, so you read it out earlier, Kirsty, but before this particular section, there's a bit where Yoda's basically been recognizing that things were stagnating, you know, and he wasn't recognizing the need to like evolve and develop the force and feed into a new f philosophy, you know, um, and yeah it's kind of cool to see Yoda in this sort of like state of wonder and like discovery you know where there are new things for him to learn too and yeah it's great that Qui-Gon can be the one to teach that yeah I might have to recommend a particular episode of the Clone Wars to you mm -hmm. where Yoda kind of battles with his shadow and you hear Qui-Gon and stuff okay cool yeah, so yeah, that would have been yeah that would be before this obviously the Clone Wars was still a thing happening yeah <laughs> Sorry, I'm always thinking about timelines. But, you know, that is interesting. So I had the impression from how this was written that this is kind of like the first encounter through the Force that Yoda had had with Qui-Gon after Qui-Gon had died. I think, yeah, I think he hasn't quite... He's not quite made sense of, of it. He thinks it's all like kind of dreams or kind of abstract, I guess. Yeah, obviously just got to give a quick shout out to Ben Solo for actually doing this so I love you babe you're just so good you're like the perfect Jedi it's like yeah gotta cry got a little tear um it does it very quickly as well is it just turns over to the light side again he's like oh yeah I can pass into the force yeah he's just a savant um oh yeah no I meant more like the ability to like bring Ray back to life basically wholesale oh I see a force ghost yeah I think you know what when Yoda's talking to him earlier about the like the dangers of attachment this is the kind of thing you need to make clear that like it's on the light side that you'll reach that kind of you know it's the Jedi version of Nirvana right yeah. that that releasing yourself from those attachments is what gives you that eternal life because it what's it allows you to pass into the force and then you're connected to everything forever yeah whereas going on to the dark side is going to lock you down and to, you know it, it imprisons him in that body exactly so i think ben solo i think he's only able to do that he's only able to bring ray back to life and like pass into the force etc etc because he doesn't like care about what happens to him at that point you know it's pure selflessness and yeah i think that's what makes it possible but yeah it's it's messy and it's complicated i'm not sure even the writers of that film knew what they were doing but yeah, as an individual isolated scene in its own right, I like it. I just don't like what happens around it. So, yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. Um, so, yeah, the final character that I really, really wanted to emphasise, I think, in this discussion of the novel is Dooku. Because, obviously, he bows out very early, sadly. So, I love him. I love Christopher Lee. I love the character. But he has some really great stuff early in the novel. 
and yeah I just wanted to get into that a bit um like I've got a very long quote from him like at the beginning but I don't think we need to read it all I think there's just a particular part I'd like to read and then what happens when he dies basically because he has a pretty brutal like awakening basically in terms of recognizing what's been going on with Palpatine and him um so yeah could you read out from Fuduku other beings are mostly abstractions Kirsty hmm for Dooku, other beings are mostly abstractions, simple schematic sketches who fall into two essential categories. The first category is assets, beings who can be used to serve his various interests, such as, for most of his life, and to some extent even now, the Jedi, particularly Mace Windu and Yoda, both of whom had regarded him as their friend for so long that it had effectively blinded them to the truth of his activities. And of course, for now, the Trade Federation, in the Intergalactic Banking Clan, the Techno Union, the Corporate Alliance, and the Weapon Laws of Geonosis, and even the Common Ravel of the Galaxy, who exists largely to provide an audience of sufficient size to do justice to his grandeur. Yeah. <laughs> I think what's great about this is that it kind of gives you an insight into how Palpatine probably views other people, too. Yep, exactly. As not people, just yep. resources and an audience. Exactly. And I think. <laughs> again like one of the best things this book does is use irony and this is like ultimate irony because obviously Dooku is like the hero of his own story you know and he has no concept of the fact he could possibly be an abstraction to someone else you know that as far as Palpatine's concerned he is like the like asset that he's using you know for a limited time until he's disposable you know Mm -hmm. and it's just that like vanity and blindness of being on the dark side where you think oh it wouldn't happen to me you know like i'm, I'm yeah. too important to be used like that but no you're really not <laughs> and yeah he's just not aware yeah i guess it kind of comes back to that metaphor of it as a play where they think that they're the main characters and they're really not you're about to be killed off in the first scene yeah exactly <laughs> and you can tell that stover just has so much fun writing him because of that and yeah it's really good yeah, and I guess I'd have to go back and watch that part of the movie again, but so much of that being delivered through Dooku's perspective in the book just gives it this... I don't know, I don't know what the word is. It's just completely different to how it's portrayed in the movie. Oh, you get Dooku's gradual realisation of the fact that he's been played. Yeah, so you do get a great moment in the film where you see Christopher Lee's face just as Anakin's yeah. about to behead him, which is a great piece of acting, but yet it's like two seconds and then it's gone. I think we get, because we get the lead up as well of him and Palpatine talking before the other Jedi, like they even arrive. Yeah. It's like you have the, you, you're able to step back in a way and see that all of this was orchestrated by Palpatine. Yeah. And Dooku thinks that he's the one who orchestrated it. <laughs> it's so funny. And I really actually love that early like encounter between Palpatine and Dooku because you really feel like Palpatine's irritation with Dooku as well and it's like <laughs> yeah. one of the very rare moments where you feel Palpatine like just being a bit more like rough-edged you know and he's not like a hundred percent in control you can tell he just yeah. can't wait to get rid of this guy <laughs> he's like oh you're pissing me off <laughs> it's great he always it makes me think of like Lego Palpatine <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly <laughs> like robot chicken Just palpatine or something ridiculous and like things could very easily go a different way because like he can't completely predict how anakin and obi-wan are going to behave in every situation yeah yeah he just has to count on them doing the wrong thing yeah and it does go that way but 
if Anakin had just decided to keep Dooku alive, that would have seriously messed things up. Yeah, exactly. I bet Dooku would have been more than happy to like screw over Palpatine after that experience. <laughs> <laughs> Could you read out the description of Dooku's death, please, Kirsty, and his gradual realisation of what's going on? Dooku's decades of combat experience are irrelevant. His mastery of swordplay is useless. His vast wealth, his political influence, impeccable breeding, immaculate manners, exquisite taste, the pursuits and points of pride to which he has devoted so much of his time and attention over the long, long years of his life, and now chains hung about upon his spirit, bending his neck before the axe. Even his knowledge of the Force has become a joke. It is this knowledge that shows him his death, makes him handle it, turn it this way and that in his mind, examine it in detail like a black gemstone, so cold it burns. As he looks up into the eyes of Anakin Skywalker for the final time, Count Dooku knows that he has been deceived, not just today, but for many, many years. That he has never been the true apprentice. That he, he has never been the heir to the power of the Sith. He has been only a tool. His whole life, all his victories, all his struggles, all his heritage, all his principles and his sacrifices, everything he's done, everything he owns, everything he's been, all his dreams and grand vision for the future Empire and the army of the Sith have been only a pathetic sham. Because all of them, all of him, add up only to this. He has existed only for this. This, to be the victim of Anakin Skywalker's first cold-blooded murder. First, but not, he knows, the last. Then the blades cross to his throat, uncrossed like scissors. Snip. And all of him becomes nothing at all. <laughs> so dark, but so good. You're seriously crushing. Because Dooku like, genuinely believes that the Separatist movement is like legit and like the real way to go because of the corruption of the republic yep. and it's just like realizing that oh all of that was just fake yep. <laughs> it was just made up by palpatine so that he could become the emperor this also doesn't come across in the films at all but the book makes it clear that he has like a serious thing going on with like speciesism like he really does not like aliens it's like oh yeah he hates grievous he's disgusted by him <laughs> Yeah, like, and I also find like Grievous are like really stupid and funny, so I actually like empathised with Dooku quite a bit in those moments, which is oh god. But I suppose Grievous is also a villain, so there are worse things to feel empathy with. Um, but yeah, it's just such a great, great piece of writing. I love it, and yeah, it just sets up the like, yeah, just how in control Palpatine is of everything and how he's using all these people in this grand ploy he has, and yeah. This is perfect. Hmm. Oh gosh, well that was a lot. That was a long, long episode, and definitely the longest novelization discussion we've had for obvious reasons. And there's and there's so much more we could have covered. That's the thing. Oh, you barely scratched the surface. Yeah, no, we could probably podcast about this thing for like ten hours, but God forbid that. Like no one would want that. Um, but yeah, I hope people found this interesting and enjoyable to some degree, and yeah, liked hearing our insights about it. Um, but yeah, I hope that you have all also read the book because it's really, really good and it deserves to be read. So yeah, go and get reading. I I have here like as a question, do we recommend the book? Yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But honestly, I do recommend all of the novelizations. Yeah. Like I, I don't think any of them have been bad. I agree. Yeah. Like I think they all add something, you know, it's just the question yeah. of the degree to which they add something because some of them are super close. And I'm actually, like, again, I don't know when we'll get to it because I expect there'll be a bit of a pause. But at some point, if you're also game Kirsty, I would like to do the sequel novels. And yeah, I'm curious to see 
like what sort of style of novelization they are, whether they're closer to the original trilogy novelizations or the prequel novelizations. I'd expect the prequel novelizations because, you know, the original trilogy ones are pretty old. Well, it is Alan Dean Foster. Yes, no, that's true. And that's one of the main reasons I'm excited to read the Force Awakens one again, because I love Alan and yeah, I, I just have like a soft spot for him, but I'm gonna stop because yeah, people know about me and Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> yeah. Do I? Listeners, I've got something to tell you. No, no. There's literally nothing to tell you. I just find his writing style funny. So. I'm sorry I put I just that in the weirdest get, way. Just get fairly compensated by Disney. It's not too much to ask. Yeah, exactly. I think that was kind of what pushed me over the edge into being like, yeah, Alan has principles. You know, I really like that. And also just the fact that he wrote a whole fan fiction about how episode nine should go, you know, which is just like, I think his episode nine is ridiculous and bad, but I respect him for caring enough to want to write that. So, yeah, maybe that could be a bonus episode where we talk about Alan Dean Foster's episode nine. (laughs) Actually, I think we did talk about that at the time. I'm not sure. I'm sure we mentioned it. Yeah, at least we mentioned it. Cyborg Ray with (laughs) 3PO. I'm just not sure how much... um, detail we went into oh gosh um no more ridiculous than ray palpatine in my opinion no. so <laughs> yeah no the film that we got was much much more ridiculous than i expected so yeah who's laughing now alan who's laughing now he might like it i would be curious to know his thoughts on the rise of skywalker Same, yeah c- come on the podcast alan we'll interview you we can have we'll have a lovely long chat about it no but yeah, no, so we've really enjoyed doing this novelization series. Um, and yeah, we hope you've also enjoyed listening to it. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a break for Christmas um, because, yeah, we both have families, we both have things to do, we're going to be a bit busy. Um, but I think it's safe to say we'll be back sometime in January. Would you agree, Kirsty? Oh, yeah, because we'll want to get back to discussing the Boba Fett stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like I'm amazed by how little we know about that at the moment. You know, I feel like there's been almost no promotion, but I presume they're just leaving the promotion for like really close to when the show comes out. So, yeah. But we'll see you on the other side, basically. So we're not going to be here to discuss the promotion <laughs> that might come out hypothetically. But I mean, maybe yeah. it won't. Maybe they're just kind of playing the cards, keeping them close to their chest. Because I. I, I guess I wasn't paying a lot of attention with the promotion of like the Marvel Disney Plus shows, but it doesn't feel like they do a lot to promote these series. They just kind of put them up. Yeah, no, that's true. Right? Yeah, I feel like I've seen very little hype for Hawkeye, for example, um, which isn't to say it isn't out there. I'm sure it is there somewhere, but yeah, it's not penetrating like someone like me where, I don't know, I'd consider myself a casual viewer of that sort of thing. So Yeah, well, like the Boba Fett, we just know that he and Fennec are in it and they're on Tatooine and that's it exactly so. yeah and I'm curious to see what they get up to I hope there's shenanigans and it's a jolly good time but yeah we'll see you on the other side and we will definitely share our opinions then fingers crossed for Omega <laughs> yeah I, I would be surprised if she doesn't show up honestly because what was all that for otherwise yeah exactly why why do the bad batch exist then um okay cool but let's leave it there So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirstie, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!